This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Before you mash that fast forward button to move to the beginning of today's episode, I'd like to quickly tell you about some ways you can support the show and everything that I'm doing right now. You can support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Again, just go on over to patreon.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Become a patron for as little as $5 a month. Or you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review. It's incredibly important with the way iTunes works. So if you have a second, please leave a rating and or review and subscribe on iTunes. Uh, you can listen to the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else you get your podcasts, you can check out chasethomaspodcast.com. That is on my previous episode, a link to my newsletter, and all my articles that I've written. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at chase double underscore Thomas. You can like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash chase Thomas writer, or you can just tell a friend you found this independent sports podcast that they should check out too. Thank you for listening. You're all the best. And I think we've reached the point in this intro where my uncle Darren can play me in. All right, let's go. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome to the Chase Thomas podcast. We're recording this early on a Wednesday, and on the line right now, SI's John Taylor. We did it. Matt Whistler and Lucas Sims. Our bad starting Reds pitchers now. Oh, the Adam the Duvall trade. Has been fulfilled. Oh, because I, I, I was under the impression when you said, you know, we're going to talk about the Reds, I was like, but they didn't do anything on the deadline. I forgot about the Adam Duvall trade. How could you? I can't, I can't, I can't believe it myself. I'm so excited. Matt Whistler has really, honestly, if we're being 1000% honest, Matt Whistler has been a Cincinnati Red for the last five years. When I saw that trade happen, I thought to myself, like, you know, it was Duvall for Wiggler, Sims, and uh, the third guy in his name, I don't remember. I remember thinking to myself, this trade would have been way more interesting like three years ago. Yeah. As is now, it's a couple... I mean, Sims was still a first-round pick. He never really figured it out, and he was going to be in AAA and yeah. uh, the Braves organization for, like, the next seven years, so... It, and uh, Wizzler, and before Wizzler got hurt, cause yeah, he was, like, a good crossing league. He had a bunch of arm problems, right? I think so. It feels like he's been like off and on in the rotation for like four years too. So it's just like one of those things where it's like a change of scenery is good. It's not necessarily like the Pirates race trade, which we're going to talk about where two guys are probably going to very much benefit from a change of scenery and Archer and Glass now, but maybe Austin Meadows too, if the Rays medical staff is better than the Pirates and he can stay healthy. But um, uh, yeah, I just, I was excited because I think there is a real possibility that, uh, Matt Whistler could be the seven and 19 with the 4.3 ERA for the next 12 seasons that, uh, the Reds have been searching for. I, I really like that, you know, talking about the trade deadline, which is arguably one of the most impactful days in all of baseball. We're, we're starting it by talking about the Cincinnati Reds. 
I mean, that's our, hey, we got to give people what they want with this podcast. And I think what people tune into most for this podcast is our Cincinnati Reds bad starting pitcher analysis. Is that really what, oh my God, that's kind of depressing. It's our thing. I mean, it's our niche. I feel like there's probably a Reds podcast out there that. There can't be. Do people talk about the Reds specifically on the podcast? Red, I feel like that's a bad, Red, bad idea. Reds fans talk about the Reds. Do they, though? I think there are Reds fan sites out there. Reds reporters, actual Reds fans exist. Right. Let's, let's, not, okay. let's not pretend they're not there. Okay, that's fair. Um, did you know Adam Duvall was an all-star two years ago? I did not. I guess it's not, a, it's not a terribly surprising thing. He was a he was okay. I mean, that's the thing with Duvall. That's what I think I said. What was more interesting trade like year, three it was not good. Ago. Yeah, but it wasn't good. I even looked through it. I was like, I don't understand. Like he's so. You know what I love though is who he compares most to. Like his similarity scores on Baseball Reference, the most common one across the board. Russell Brannion. The Braves got Russell Brannion two point oh. Adam Duvall. Adam Duvall wishes he were Russell Brannion. Yeah, he's kind of like the Matt Adams uh, raised acquired last year, I think, um, who can do a lot of different stuff, but he's not really someone you want to play every day. No, and the main, the main anyway, reason the Braves acquired yeah. him was because he's very cheap and under and under team control for a bit because that, that ownership group is staggeringly cheap in Atlanta. Oh, yeah, they're um, they're uh, I, I could go on a diatribe about uh, the way they're pushing everything right now but i'll save that for another podcast um this podcast is not a cincinnati reds podcast as much as we joke it's not what this is going to be about no what it's going to be about is because mlb got their feet wet a little bit they finally got to experience what nba fans get to experience all the time with their league which is constant just rumor mill stuff ken rosenthal's phone never stopping to blow up and just it was crazy. Like Twitter was really fun for baseball fans yesterday. And, you know, we got a lot of good stuff. It wasn't like one of those things where um, <laughs> there it was things actually happened. It wasn't a lot of dancing and it wasn't a lot of Neil Huntington situation where it was like, oh, I'm interested, but I'm not going to do it. Or AJ Preller like, oh, am I about to start doing some AJ Preller like things? No, they actually did it. Neil Huntington actually traded for Chris Archer and Ken Rosenthal actually predicted the exact return two years ago. I don't know if you saw that. Um, yeah, I, 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 I did. And That's Plasma, weird yeah. and kind of creepy. And what does Ken know? And when did he know it? He made a deal with the devil a long time ago, I think, is what's happening here. He probably did, yes. Yeah. Um, but you wrote about it for SI.com. Who were? Let's start with the winners. Let's not start negative, because we did start with the Cincinnati Reds, and I don't think there's any way to spin it other than things are pretty negative there. So who won the deadline first comes to mind for you? Um, I think pretty much all the major contenders did well, either in terms of the moves they made or in the moves that their competitors didn't make. Uh, obviously, I mean, going all the way back into the first major trade of, of July, you know, by the deadline, it's not just what happened on July 31st, it's everything leading into it. Uh, the Dodgers did well, obviously getting Machado. Uh, the Yankees did well to, you know, boost their rotation and bullpen both. Um, they made some smart moves there. Uh, the Red Sox made some nice ads, although, more of their season. Did they though? I, I like Nate Yavaldi. I like Ian Kinsler. They're perfectly fine for what the Red Sox have. I am a little surprised 
they didn't. They didn't have a bullpen arm. Yeah, that that's the one. That's the one I'm not really sure about. Apparently, they were. You know, there's a there was a rumor that they were going after Kelvin Herrera um, the yeah, night before the deadline. The Nationals are in disarray and they don't know which way to go. And ownership is going one way. Rizzo may have wanted to go the other. And yeah, it's, it's a bit of a Suddenly, mess. Uh, yeah, um, we'll talk about the Nationals, but the Red Sox. It's interesting because I didn't expect you to put them in the contender like that did well category because it does feel like. I mean, they're 40 games over 500, so it's not like they necessarily really need all that much. But banking on Joe Kelly and hoping Evaldi can be a good bullpen arm come playoff time, like those are all, I guess, defensible. But I, I just well, the, if, the, I'm I, I agree Reds, them, if I'm a Red Sox fan, I'm a little concerned. I agree with them on a curve in a sense that they their farm system doesn't have the pieces to move for guys like right Machado or um, you know they were in on Zach Britton, but the Yankees I think simply probably outbid them and i think that was them i mean not knowing anything about the way the red sox operated over the deadline i would imagine that they were probably just outbid in a lot of different scenarios um mm-hmm. i'm i mean yeah I, I i am i still remain surprised they didn't get at least one bullpen arm uh, it seems like they're gonna probably hope for someone in august on the waiver deadline but you know obviously the, the names and, and players that are going to be available then just aren't as good uh, they're not they're not impact types. You're going to be getting another middle relief types, which means you're pretty much putting all your eggs in the Matt Barnes and Tyler Thornburg basket, which I don't feel great about, uh, or I wouldn't feel great about rather if I were a Red Sox fan. But um, but either way, I think you know they they addressed the places they needed to address. Other, I don't think they're like a, a 100% qualified qualified winner for the deadline. I think probably the team that you would say won the most of the deadline if such a thing even makes sense is probably the Dodgers. If only because they got the best player available um, and they did it early enough on where they didn't have, where they both got the most impact they could get out of Manny Machado and also didn't have to pay, um, you know, didn't have to get into a bidding war with anyone after the fact. Um, they stayed under the luxury tax threshold by getting Dozier for Logan Forsythe. Yeah, and then they both make nine million this year. So and then getting Dozier, getting Dozier was a expert nice, maneuvering. Getting Dozier was a nice yeah. move. I know he's been a disappointment, but he's been less of a disappointment than Logan Forsythe. So obviously you're you know banking but on that being the case. Also, he matches against lefties, which is a, which is good he, for that lineup. Been, yes, they need somebody like Dozier. Like uh, I think he has like a nine ninety OPS against lefties since the start of twenty sixteen, something like that. It's uh it's pretty crazy, and he's going to be a utility guy, and the rich get richer in Los Angeles, but it's one of those things where you got to tip your cap to Friedman for finding a way to stand to that $187 million uh, luxury tax threshold and also acquiring Manny Machado, and it's uh, we can't overthink it. Like They got Manny Machado, and they just added Brian Dozier just because, and... Uh, they're going to be okay. I think the Dodgers might be okay, which makes what the Rockies did that much more surprising. And guess what, John? It turns out investing in the bullpen this offseason, like the Rockies did, did not pay off. Yeah. It didn't work. What a shock that the worst thing you can do in terms of bullpen construction is just throw a lot of money at relievers. That almost never works. Cause you we don't talk about that enough. Well, it, that was absolutely insane it is but especially because when you look at the guys they picked up certainly there's nothing on the surface wrong with wade davis or brian shaw and i i know jake mickey wasn't a free was was a he was a return free agent signing but none of those guys i mean they're what 10 15 elite like regularly elite bullpen arms in baseball 
Um, there's mm-hmm. a pretty small group of guys where you're comfortable year in and year out that they're going to be great. And even that, even that's got its share of variance to it. But when you're talking about shelling money on guys like, and they're good, you know, Wade Davis had a good 2017. Brian Shaw had a good 2017. Jake McGee, I'm pretty sure had a good 2017. But you're talking about guys are, you know, year in, year out, things can change so easily. I don't know. I mean, I, it, it's just a the second worst ERA uh, among all 30 team bullpens. Second worst, and they invested like 120 million in it. It was not the it was not a strategy that ended up paying out for them. And so they, you know, I, I just find it no. interesting that Colorado. I mean, they made their one move and they game. did nothing, and they're in the race. They well, they got nothing. they got Xiong Huano, who was a good pickup. I just find it interesting that they I bothered mean, doing anything at all because I, you know, certainly they're they're now half a game behind Arizona for second place, and the Dodgers right behind them. I think it's you know they're they're very much in it. But I just feel like that mm. team has so many flaws and problems that you're kind of just, you know, they had that surge, but then you're kind of just assuming that surge is for real. I, any team can surge. Like that's the guy, that's kind of the thing with Pittsburgh too, where it's like, you know, you just because a team is capable of surging doesn't necessarily mean they're capable of keeping it up. So, you know, obviously um, Colorado didn't go to the same length that Pittsburgh did in trying to go for it. But um I just I just found it kind of interesting that they they think that's apparently the true talent level when you look across that team and you're like well this team has a bad outfield a bad bullpen and no rotation depth I don't really see you know their best case scenario is at this point feels like a wild card game so it, I don't know it, it's and it's the same thing with Pittsburgh I think with with the Archer trade it's like I get I get why you add a pitcher with um. With with so let's talk like, about that. Well, yeah, like, I guess yeah. Let's, let's, we'll we'll jump straight into that. Give, give me an intro. Give me a set me up here. So the Rays, like, I just I can't. Whenever it's like one of those things where it's like the Tampa Bay Rays. It's like just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in because it, you and I we've talked about the Rays a lot in the last year and the Marlins and just the state of Florida baseball and the bullshit that they've pulled in the last year. But this was good. This is a good thing they did. They, like getting Tyler Meadows, I mean Austin Meadows is a good pickup for them. They need more outfield depth. I like him there. I, I still am high on him if he can stay healthy. His whole thing is injuries. Like if he can get over the oblique stuff and everything else, like he's gonna be a really good player there. They got Tommy Pham for next to nothing and he wanted out, so the Cardinals really didn't have an option there and he's kind of at a down year. But like they're buying low on guys that I could see turning into really good players for them down the line. Like obviously it still would have behooved them to keep somebody like a Corey Dickerson uh, down the line. But, you know, he's on the Pirates now, and he's doing really well. So good for him, and he gets to reunite with Chris Archer. But Tyler Glasnow, another guy who was a potent, thought of as a potential ace just a few years ago, and he hasn't figured it out huh. in Pittsburgh. Um, I think that's important, getting him in Tampa Bay. Like, Tampa Bay, like, let me check my notes. Yes, they have zero starters right now. So just getting one is, uh, is a positive. And then, you know, like... I can see them like pivoting a little bit where if a couple things hit over the next year or two, like they're back in the wild card race, um, they're not going to win the AL East anytime soon because the Yankees and the Red Sox are just um, freaks of nature and are built to last for a couple more years. So what can they do? All right, let's not go all the way in where we really fool ourselves into thinking we're like the Blue Jays and can actually compete with the AL East title. No, we're going to do what we can to buy low on guys. And they finally found the right Chris Archer trade because I do think they were comfortable keeping somebody like him 
um, if the right deal did not come up. But Chris Archer has had a 4.0 plus ERA in the last three years. He just hasn't been the same guy. You put him in Pittsburgh for three more years because I think that's how much team control he still has. Guess what? That's a good deal for the Pirates. And the one thing that we forget about when you rip Neil Huntington for the Garrett Cole trade is that Garrett Cole didn't want to be there anymore. Like, that's one of those things where they could have forced him, I guess, but, like, he wanted out. Like, that was one of those things where they missed the playoffs back-to-back years. They traded McCutcheon. Like, it was one of those, like, things. They pivoted. Like, I understand why they pivoted. They had horrible luck in the wild card game. They didn't spend enough, but also they have a weird ownership situation that uh, Pirates fans are very much aware of. So we don't really know how much of it is the front office versus ownership just saying, hey, we haven't made the playoffs in two years. We need to pivot away, trade Cole, trade McCutcheon, trade whoever you can and get as much as you can right now as we uh, reconfigure things. And guess what? I Kudos to them because even though they punted on this season, things have turned around amazingly in the last month they had the number one era the number one fip plus for starters and bullpen and from july 11th to july 24th everybody's sitting i think they had the number one wrc plus from july 11th to july 24th the pirates did everything right in that they saw that this all clicked in july and instead of just saying hey this is fool's gold we're gonna double down we're gonna try our hand at the wild card game again because they've just the ptsd that fans have suffered from the pirates being in the wild card game should be enough for him to be like i don't think you guys want to deal with this again do you really want to be matched up with like the braves in the wild card game do you do you really want this i don't know but guess what huntington did it he got permission from ownership to do something like a chris archer deal i think it's one of those where everybody wins and that's a rarity where like they're still set up to make a real run they're like three games back like i I think they're there. Like when the Brewers make the kind of weird stuff they do, the Cubs are going to the division. That's fine. But if you give me Chris Archer in a wild card game versus um, what the Brewers are going to have to throw out, because guess what? The Brewers didn't get a starting pitcher. That's who we all expected them to get. They got Jonathan Shoup instead and are going to make a really weird infield dynamic. Try and work, whatever. But guess what? I like what the Pirates did a lot more than what the Brewers did the deadline. And I think the Pirates deserve a lot of credit for doing what they did and i know you disagree based on your piece this morning that again everybody should check out but um that's where i'm at i just think archer would have made more sense for milwaukee than for pittsburgh because i think milwaukee is in a better position than pittsburgh actually to do something you know i I feel like pittsburgh it's not exactly building on a house of sand What, what i what gets me about what the pirates did and in a vacuum trading for chris archer is certainly a defensible move for a variety of different reasons you know he's he, but to me, it's it's just the the 180 degree turnaround from this winter. It's like you, the Pirates this off season is as, as you know, and I'm just gonna quickly recap it. They got rid of Garrett Cole and Andrew McCutcheon. They pretty much said we're not gonna try in 2018, or not nothing. We're not gonna try, but it's like you know we're gonna. I was gonna say I don't think that's necessarily true. They still had a lot of young talent. They did, it's but it was it like was very, just, yeah. but it was very clear that they were not. The 2018 was not like contention in 2018 was not a goal. You do not get rid of Andrew McCutcheon, Garrett Cole if you plan on contending in 2018. I mean, that's, I don't think they were going to contend either way, though. Probably not, but they made it like they went from. I think the bigger issue is they got they got a bad deal for Cole. Is I think the bigger issue is they got more for. Uh, they they just that's the problem. Is well, that, because that's, that's my thing. Is they great, they yeah. gave up more for for Archer than they got for Cole, and I understand part of that is. Uh, the team control aspect of it, and that Archer is under contract, very cheap for the next uh, two plus seasons, I believe, or whatever exactly it is. 
But man, that team control doesn't really matter much when the guy you're acquiring isn't particularly good. Chris Archer's on his third straight year of being a league average pitcher. And I know that yeah. the, the peripheral, you got the peripherals there, he doesn't walk guys, he strikes a lot of guys out, you know, his, he gives up so much hard contact that at a certain point you're like, well, maybe this is just what Chris Archer is. A guy who gets strikeouts but also gives up hard contact, and as a result, you kind of cancel each other out, and you end up with a guy who's pretty much always with a four ERA and, a, and an ERA plus around like 100 to 105, and it's like, that's fine. And certainly, like, you know, there's nothing to, to guarantee that Glasnow and Meadows are going to be all-stars going forward. I mean, Glasnow can't has no con- or has bad control, you know, can't repeat his mechanics, struggles with a very hard fastball. Meadows has had injury issues and, you know, kind of cooled off after a little bit of a hot streak to begin in Pittsburgh. And I guess we'll have to see what the third, uh, the third piece of that trade is once it's announced. But to me, it's just like, it's, it's such an abrupt turnaround and I understand that it's not just for 2018 it's for the future, but you're also not getting a pitcher who's really done all that. Well, you gave up a better pitcher in the off season than the one you got. And you paid more for the one you got now than the one it's almost like the pirates would have been better off if they just kept McCutcheon and Cole. It's like, well, so why did you do that then? Why, why did you even bother? Ooh, now we're in the weeds. See, but I think, the one thing you can't leave out is the part that Cole didn't want to be there. So it's like they that, did he not want to be there? I mean, I don't chemistry. Did he not want to be there? I, I never. I talked to him in the in that spring is training, and I never really is that he didn't. Huh, when I talked to him in spring training, I didn't really get the sense that that was that he was like glad to be out of Pittsburgh. I'm, I'm I, I I will not be. I would not be surprised if that were the case because you know the way the Pirates handled uh, their stretch of super contention was about as that. That to me is the other thing. That the Pirates in, you know, when they were making their runs um, in 2014 and 2015, and, you know, the, those two straight years they went to the wild card game, um, when, and the year uh, 20, yeah, 20, 2015, when they won 98 games, they did nothing at the, at the deadline. Nothing, 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 nothing. A team that could have won 100 plus games and that would finish only yeah. two games out of first place in the Central. And they did nothing. Now is the time they want to do something? I don't get it. This all just screams... This all screams just like rocky to tumultuous ownership. Where it's like their owner... And I'm blanking on his name right now. Bob always, Yeah. He's notoriously cheap, right? He is. He's a billionaire who owns a bunch of newspapers... But the Pirates routinely run one of the lowest payrolls in baseball, and they have pretty much ever since he he took over. Which is a tough thing, and Big Data Baseball profiled a lot of, like, one of my favorite things is the Neil uh, Huntington-Clint Hurdle (laughs) relationship, because it should not work. It's a really insane partnership that's been very fruitful for the last couple years. But I I just, I, I can't rip the Pirates for this, because it does feel like they're doing the best they can with a shitty owner, which I don't think can be dismissed. And um, Archer is obviously not the pitcher that Garrett Cole is. And what really hurts though about the Cole stuff, if you dig up like past like r- rumors about who they wanted in a Cole deal, Gleyber Torres, Miguel Anduar, like those kind of guys. And we see what they are now. And you're like, Oh God, imagine if they got in Gleyber Torres for Garrett Cole. Well, because that, the Yankees, that's like, just the thing. Like when you look yeah. back at that Cole return and it feels so light and, People were saying at the time, it's like, yeah. 
And and I know the refrain from the Pirates and from Pirates fans and folks who defended the trade was, well, it's not just about the players they got. It's about that all four or four or five. I can't remember how many players they got in return. I think it was just four. Um, they all have – it's the same refrain with Archer. Well, but they have a lot of team control left. So what? If they're not particularly good, what does it matter how long you have team control for? You know? Yeah. I understand that not every player you acquire, not every player on your team can be like a four wins above replacement or better star. You know, you need those two to three win guys to, to, you to build out the roster. You would one like potential all-star than three to four guys who are under control that profile out as like average to below average starters. You'd rather Pretty just much. get like one, like Gliber Torres, like, if there's that's a, all you can get. There's a, like, good, yeah. there's a good chance. Like, I don't know what Garrett Cole is going gonna, is gonna to do going forward, but like, you know, here's your bet. Who's going to be more valuable going forward? He's probably going to win a World Series this year. Like, who's going to be more valuable going forward? You know, Garrett Cole all by himself or or the package the Pirates got of Joe Musgrove, Colin Moran, and Michael Feliz. That, that, uh, that to me is the thing. I know, I know that those three guys, and they also got a fourth player in there who's in the minors, but I know that those three guys are, yeah. you know, on the Pirates now, or at least two of them are. I don't know if – I'm actually not sure about Feliz because he is not a particular – that's the thing. Feliz is not a good pitcher. He doesn't know where the ball's going when he throws it. Um, I don't know. I just, the Pirates are just big. They're confounding in the way that they have done this. In a vacuum, in a total vacuum, getting Chris Archer is not a bad decision. You know, it, it's certainly a decision you can make. And they also got a good closer. They did, they did get Tony Teller, who, who was also one of those guys, you know, and this, this is the pattern with everything the Pirates do. There's team control. You know, he's under control for another two seasons. But in a vacuum, those are fine trades. Those are good players. You know, you can nitpick as to whether or not Archer is actually an ace or, you know, what his issue is. And maybe maybe going to race series pitching school will help. Although I, I will note that, Arch, that Archer's fastball gets lit up and he's going to a team that throws more fastballs than any team in baseball. So that's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. Um, to me, Archer felt like a guy who would have benefited from going to a team like Houston uh, with their like super data-driven stuff, maybe going to a team like the Yankees that doesn't rely on the fastball as much. A, a team with a different mindset. I'm, I'm not 100% convinced that Pittsburgh is the best place for him. Um but to me, it's just the the way the Pirates went about this. The kind Did of, you see that the Pirates have wanted him for like ten years? Yeah, Neil Huntington. Uh, Huntington Neil Huntington loved him. him. Yeah, since he was a since he was a minor leaguer way back in the day before he got traded. Yeah. yeah, before he got traded uh, by the Cubs for uh, Garza. Yeah, Matt Garza. That's right. Um, to me, though, it's just the chain of events that got us here. The timeline for the Pirates is just the, the most confusing part of it for me. It's it's just for me hard to understand how it is that that brain trust kind of tied itself into a knot here where it's like, you would have just been better off keeping, but if, if, if you wanted to contend and, it, and, you know, obviously getting Chris Archer isn't just about the future. It's about this year. And this is the pirate saying, yes, we think we're a realistic wild card contender. Why didn't you just keep McCutcheon and Cole? Nothing that Michael Feliz, Colin Moran, Joe Musgrove, and the two minor leaguers that they got for Andrew McCutcheon, they've done close to zero. I think Moran has probably done the most to contribute to this season. And Moran is, has hit, he's been league average with the bat. He's actually been negative in wins above replacement. So literally none of the guys you acquired have helped you in your, in your, in your attempt to contend in 2018. So why didn't you just keep them? And why didn't you just see if you could get to this point in the season with those players in contention, and then you make a move for a guy like Chris Archer? Or then you move a guy yeah. like, or imagine if the Pirates had gotten to this point in the season. 
you know, 15, 20 games under 500, completely out of it. And they have Garrett uh-huh. Cole, who would easily have been the best pitcher available on the market. They could have gotten a ransom for Garrett Cole. They could have really done, I imagine, done far better than what they ended up getting from the Astros. That to me is just yeah. like the the way that they played that the, this all played out, and I'm never going to be against a team going for it. Like every team should always be going for it. There's nothing grosser to me than a team just like saying like with the Pirates of this offseason, and eh, this year doesn't matter. But like just the way that this all played out for the Pirates, it just doesn't make sense to me. It's it's something where it's like if 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 you wanted to contend and you wanted to get Chris Archer for that purpose, you should have just kept Garrett Cole and Andrew McCutcheon, played out the season, seen where it gotten you. And if you know what, and if you've reached, if you've reached the deadline and, and you're not winning and McCutcheon and Cole are still there, guess what? You can trade them. To, to do it before the season was purely about payroll. There's no other, no other explanation for it because in the, if, it's, if it's about a long-term rebuilding plan, then you don't pick up Chris Archer in the middle of the season. That, that to me is just, it's just, it's confounding. I, I don't think the Archer trade is a bad one necessarily because, you know, what they gave up in, in Meadows and, and Glasnow Maybe those guys are good. Maybe they aren't. I like it for the Rays only in the sense that they got two, you know, two pieces with a lot of upside plus whatever the third player ends up being for a guy that they clearly were not Apparently going to hang on to. Right? Yeah, because if I mean, recording is accurate. It's going to be a good player. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the the little um, the little key with you know if, if the if the trade says a player to be named later, it's going to be a good prospect down the road. If it's a player to be named later or mm-hmm. cash, it's going to be just be some some random minor league filler. So. I don't know. I've, I've, I've ranted now enough about the pirates, but I just find that whole process of theirs to be just kind of baffling. I get that they're just trying to kind of accumulate as many team controllable pieces as they can, but it just seems like if you, I'm sure I'm not sure, but if it feels like if you were to ask Neil Huntington, if you wanted like a do over on the whole um, McCutcheon Cole thing, probably would say yes because it just doesn't really feel like I think they do half I don't think he cares about the McCutcheon thing like, no and, and probably not McCutcheon doesn't really McCutcheon hasn't been good Cole, with, with yes I would agree I think with Cole they could have done yeah. better and everyone said they could have done better they should have done better and if they'd held on to him to this point and you know they were out of contention well look at this either either the Pirates could have gotten to this point been out of contention and moved Cole for a bunch of prospects or could have gotten to this point with Cole and then added Archer to that rotation and made it even better I don't know. I just it, what's funny to me too is all this kind of uh, aggressive, bold decision making by the Pirates that we never see, despite the fact that their best case scenario right now is to be the visiting team in the play in the in the winner go home game. It, it's it's just that's the other kind of yeah. strange thing to me. I think if the Pirates were had been like if if the standings right now were was Pittsburgh like a game or two behind Chicago in the Central with a very real chance that they could take that division. I think that, that this trade would also probably make more sense to me. But as it stands, the Pirates are, I believe, seven games out in the Central. Uh, a number that yeah, is not... They're, what, three and a half back of the wild card or something? Three, they are three six, six games back in the Central, um, and I believe three or three and a half back, uh, three back of the second wild card. Six games yeah. in a division is not nothing, but it's a lot, especially when the Cubs are probably the best team in the National League right now. Certainly, three games in the wild card. I, I, I mean, so you have above the Dodgers. Okay. I think it's either them or the Dodgers. I mean, I think it's and yeah. the Arizona. Or, sorry, Arizona. Uh, the Dodgers probably have the rotation advantage. The Cubs have the better lineup. I think um, slightly, not by like a staggering amount. Machado really did close the gap there a lot. But that's the thing. I don't. I don't see the Pirates closing that gap in the Central. 
You know, they're, they're that's not. I don't think they were trying to though. I don't think these moves indicated that's, that's what their plan was. But then that's the was. thing. Like, you're then their whole goal is to get into the wild card game. I think it's more of like I think it's twofold, where it's like one to really compete down the stretch for the wild card game, and two to have more intriguing talent that are under team control for the next couple of years. Which is which it. is fine, and I and I get all that. Again, I don't think this is necessarily a bad trade for the Pirates. I can totally see the the rationale behind it. I just think the process that got us to this point um, feels flawed. It just it just feels like um, not necessarily a mistake, but it just it just feels flawed. And that I think they just want to pseudo sustainably contend. I think that's the Pirates' mantra right now. Yeah, in a sense, it it, it it reminds me in a sense of actually what the Rays are doing because you see what the Rays did in trading Archer. They didn't trade Archer for a bunch of guys down in Low A who are you know maybe three years down the road are going to be part of that Rays team. They traded for guys in Meadows and Glasnow who are able to help now. Like both, I assume yeah, they both, traded for Tommy Pham. Yeah, they traded for Tommy Pham. Tommy Pham's thirty yeah. years old. Like he's not a he's not like an up and coming prospect, but he's a guy who it's like if he bounces back, he's giving them MVP caliber production for you know like fourth outfielder prices so the moves what if the rays traded for somebody like Corey dickerson <sighs> he could help i i yelled way too much about the rays kind of mini fire sale mm-hmm. over the winter and then i now have but since the rays have actually been and eh, we won't call them good but we'll call them okay um rays fans just every now and then jumping into my twitter mentions to say to complain about me saying that the rays did bad things this winter and i i stand by philosophically what the but I, I don't guess, see how you could say that. Like, did the MLBPA like did they attack the Rays? Well, the Rays, and, both the, the Rays and Pirates, I, yeah. both the Rays and Pirates were part of that grievance that the MLBPA yeah, filed. Part, it was the Rays, Pirates, Marlins. Who else? Uh, I, there was one other team in there, but either way, they were two of the teams yeah. mentioned that grievances who were not using their revenue sharing money to make the roster better. But I, but like what you said, it's. Tampa and Pittsburgh are two franchises that just seem to operate in that perpetual level of like pseudo contention where they're just kind of constantly aiming for 500. And maybe if yeah. things break right, cause they have some high variance players, maybe that they'll, you know, quietly somehow end up with like 85 to 87 wins. And that might be enough for a wild card spot. Cause they know that they're not good right. enough to win their divisions unless something absolutely crazy happens. So, and I understand that there's certainly not, there's, I'm certainly not going to say that's a bad way to run a team. You know, I, there are many ways to run a team and if that's the way that works for them, that's the way that works for them. But to me, the kind of, the thing that kind of sticks about the Rays and Pirates is that they don't have to be this way. They can spend more money. Every team in baseball can spend more money, but especially the Rays and Pirates can spend more money. You know, they, they, they have that facade of like, you know, the little, the little scrappy small market teams that could, but it's like, the Pirates are owned by a billionaire, and the Rays signed a TV deal that's going to pay them out close to a billion dollars over the next ten or twenty years. It's just one of those things where it's like you can you can do better. You don't have to do this. You know, you you guys are you know you guys are run by smart people, but you you know, and you're never mm-hmm. you can't like yes, you cannot spend the same way the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Dodgers and the Cubs and you know all these other teams can, but you don't have to be hugging the bottom of the payroll rankings either. You can you can do more. I think that's what kind of gets me about those teams, especially with the way the Rays operate now, where they they don't have starters. They literally do not have a starter aside from Blake Snell, who's on the disabled list. Everyone else on that team is a is a reliever at the moment, and that's the kind of thing where it's like, oh, it's a you know crazy new strategy they're trying, where they're just not going to have starters or whatever. But it's like, but it's also about salary suppression. Relievers are cheaper yeah. than starters. I also think it's like one of those things where it's like um, reputation matters 
when we perceive stuff like this because I think this would this kind of situation of like no starters available right now would be like seen as incompetence if it was like the the Orioles who found their sure, way if, into this, something like this. If the Mets were yeah. trying this opener thing and if the Mets were at a point where you looked yeah. at their rotation depth chart and there was literally no one there, we'd be howling about it. You know, there's exactly, but it's the Rays, so they're like, oh, they're a smart front office, forward thinking. They're just they're experimenting over here. Yeah, it's right. all and, reputation. And, and forward thinking is a nice little cover for cheap sometimes because that's really that's what the Rays are. They are a cheap franchise. They do not spend. They don't want to. Hey, spend. they're getting a new stadium. <laughs> that, written about too. that they want to um, that yeah. they want to <laughs> ask the city of Tampa or the or the or Hillsborough County rather for like four hundred fifty million dollars, which is laughable. Yeah. Um, and I think that that kind of describes the Pirates too. I mean, yeah, that it is pseudo contention. It is this kind of always aim for five hundred with a lot of cheap team controlled players, and when that doesn't work out, you kind of cycle through them again. But you never really go through a full teardown. Even what the Pirates did this offseason, what the Rays and Pirates both did this offseason, wasn't really a full teardown. They got rid of some guys who were, you know, obviously the Pirates got rid of two very good players in Cole McCutcheon. The Rays got rid of a bunch of kind of middle of the roster players in Jay Goderizzi and, and Corey Dickerson. I think that's why I'm going easy on the Pirates is that they got rid of a really old guy that they probably would have kept McCutcheon if the DH had been instituted in the NL by this point. Like, I think they would have just kept them as their, like, guy for the foreseeable future kind of like i mean it's unfortunate they can do a chipper like thing for him but it just they had a lot of outfield depth that's another part of it where it's like they have guys and they had to play meadows and other guys to see what they have with certain people and um i'm just not going to rip them but uh it's fine what whatever we'll see what happens pirates i hope they make the wild card game because i want to see archer versus who blake anderson or something for uh Chase, Chase Anderson. Would be, I mean, it's, it's funny you, you look at right. the, you look at the wild card right now. I know that the Dodgers are in the wild card spot right now, but I think it'll ultimately be Arizona. It's probably fighting for that one. But you have Milwaukee, you have Atlanta, you have Colorado, you have the Dodgers right now, probably Arizona, and then you have the Pirates. Then the Cardinals and Giants are only four and a half back, but St. Louis got rid of Fam, and the Giants did pretty much nothing. And then you have the Nationals. The yeah, no wild card race is tight. Um, yeah, but it, it's funny to think that yeah, probably the Pirates now. Unless the Dodgers are the actual are an actual wild card team and they start Clayton Kershaw, you're probably looking at the Pirates as having the best uh, starter, or maybe the Nationals, I guess, because he would have Scherzer. But um, taking the Nationals and Dodgers out of it, the Pirates probably have the best guy you could throw out. And I guess the Giants have Bumgarner. You know what? The Pirates have a really good option, which is again why I think that I want Mil- the Braves to get it just so we get Julio Tehran in a wild card game, just because like, <laughs> the the variance. <laughs> of a Julio Tehran pitching in a big spot like that, it'd probably be Fulton Evich, but like if it was Tehran, oh my god, but that, that's it'd be a, incredible! But that's it'd either be why... a masterful six and one third, like eight strikeout game, or like he gets blown up in inning one, and it's just a, it's just a fucking dumpster fire. Like there's no middle ground there. there that's the Julio Tehran experience, but that's that's why I do think the Brewers would have been better served with Archer, just because that's a team that could have used yeah. that guy with number one upside, even if Archer has struggled and he has they struggled. wanted to part with like top prospects though but they, the but they, but they, they did give up a, but they yeah. did give up prospects from Mustakas and scope and joaquin sorry and i know none of the guys I think they was, gave what, up number five and i, I know no, i know none of the guys i think the highest one was number five yeah i know i know none of the guys sure. they gave up were like super prospects they didn't give up keston hero they didn't give up any of the other and granted like their top prospects went to went to miami in the offseason for for christian yellow so i don't necessarily know if there was even the stomach to give up more guys but exactly, that's why I don't think they were ever going to do it. Well, I but I guess, I guess I think they. Yeah. I guess if you look at what... and the starting pitching market was terrible. Like that's the other thing we're missing here is that 
Archer was really it. Like Blake Snell was joked about, but J.A. Happ already got gobbled up. Lance Lynn, like it was a really thin market. Like there's was. Like, not a lot of starters that. You and know, I believe so I've had they were kind of screwed either way, and that's that's I've why I feel enough, bad for the Nationals. Well, I've had enough Brewers fans yelling at me on Twitter now about their saying that they needed to do something for their rotation. Like actually, the rotation is good. It's like actually, the rotation has Wade Miley and Julius just seen it on purpose. Like I don't, I don't really care what they've done this season. You want to tell me that you're comfortable? With literally anyone currently in the Brewers rotation taking the mound in a wild card game, like you, you are happy if Chase Anderson is standing there for the literal like game you must win to continue in the playoffs, your first playoff game in seven years, and you want to hand it to Chase Anderson. That to me is just one of those things where it's like, the, I mean, I yeah, the, the starting pitching market was bad. Um, there was not a lot of ace material on there. I mean, Jay Happ. Archer's probably the best pitcher got traded, but Jay Happ's probably number two, and that says a lot about kind of what was available and out there. But like, and I'm not sure what the Brewers would have had to move to equal Pittsburgh's offer of of um, or to equal Pittsburgh gave up for Archer. It probably would have involved Orlando Arcia and, and some other pieces, but it just feels to me like that's a team that could have used a guy who at least has that ace upside, who can, you know, who you'd be feel better about giving the ball to in a game like a wild card game or, or game one of a division series, as opposed to hoping that um, Junior Guerra and Freddie Peralta um, are, are going to carry you through a playoff series. It just, that just, to me, that's just why I put the Brewers in my losers column because it feels like the deadline is a missed opportunity for them. I get walking story is a good pickup. You make your bullpen better. Mustakas and Scope can hit, even if they can't really, not really great about the whole getting on base thing. But then you you screw up your infield alignment to do that, and Scope's not even going to be starting all the time because they want to keep RC at shortstop. So now you're in this weird juggling of Mustakas and Shaw and Scope and Jesus Aguilar, and you know maybe Eric Thames and maybe Ryan Braun at first base too, probably more in the outfield for those last two. Why not just go get a starter? Like, I understand there'll be some names available in August, you know, and it would probably end up being like the Brewers getting Matt Harvey at some point to bring it all back to the bad Reds pitchers. But yeah. it, it just feels to me like a missed opportunity there. I'm not saying that, you know, there was very obviously a number one starter on the market that the Brewers, you know, should have gotten. And certainly, you know, we saw this offseason. We were all yelling about the Brewers to get starting pitching, you know. Go go, go sign you Darvish. Go sign Jake Arrieta. Go trade for, uh, you know, whoever. Arrieta and Darvish. I mean, Darvish has been pretty good. Darvish has obviously been hurt. You know, you know, go sign Lance Lynn, go sign Alex Cobb. Those guys have been terrible. You know, certainly, like you know, us, you know, armchair GMs for those moves. You know, they wouldn't have worked out maybe. Although that's the fallacy of the predetermined outcome. But still, like, I'm not saying I know more than David Stearns. It just feels to me like not adding a starter to a rotation that needed the help or at least some depth feels like a miss to me. Um, especially when they lost Brent Suter the other day to, to a blown out elbow. And especially when it looks like they're probably not going to get Jimmy Nelson back at this point. Um, I'm just more upset at the Nationals not adding a starter. Like, they're 10-24 and 24 with, like, a 4.5-something ERA since, like, June 1st with their starting pitchers. Like, they're, they've just been awful. Like, everybody. Tanner Rourke, even though I think he pitched last night in the 25-4 to 4, uh, slashing of the New York Mets. But um, Strasburg's hurt. He's had a down year. There's some weird behind-the-scenes stuff with Strasburg and Scherzer and everything else. Like, Scherzer's really their only consistent guy. Like, Gio's still sitting there. But, like, they were a team that really needed that and a catcher because they've gotten historically inept production from the catcher spot, and they didn't want to part with two top-level prospects with the Marlins for JT Romuto. And they didn't do it. 
And this, if you're not going to trade Harper, you have to double down and give up these prospects for some top of the line talent because you're five and a half back. And it's just, I didn't really understand. Like I wanted to talk about them last because they were just the nationals. Like if you're going to do this, which I am all here for keeping Harper and losing him for just the compensatory pick. Like I would rather do that because it still signals to the fan base that like we saw this at the end. Harper took a contract that we just couldn't stomach and everything else and we we tried our best and we just didn't have a lot of good luck in the playoffs everything else we added scherzer we drafted well we have all these stars in the pipeline like we still have anthony rendon but like i just i don't understand why they didn't add at least even if you can't get romuto because the price is too high which is fine that's very fair what they wanted was a lot and i can understand if you're worried about harper leaving anyway that you don't want to give up that kind of talent in a trade with them However, I just not adding somebody. So it's like we ripped the Brewers for not adding a starting pitcher, but like they'll still be a playoff team without him. The Nationals are not a guaranteed playoff team. They're far from it. They're five and a half back of the NL East. I think they're a game under 500 or 500 now. Like it's just, they should have done something. That's one of those things where like they should have had a plan. It's clear that there was a disconnect in the days leading up to the deadline where it's like ownership wanted to do one thing and Rizzo wanted to do another. And then Rizzo who... Uh, by all accounts, really loves Bryce Harper, and I don't think he ever really wanted to trade him anyway. Like Harper's having a down year, but like that's not the issue. He's playing a lot in center. Like I, if I'm the Nationals, I ha- would have done everything in my power to add at least one more starter and part with at least one more top of the line prospect just to give this the last year of this contingent window, like uh, the last little jolt, and <laughs> see what happens. But they didn't. Like the like the Phillies and the Braves are not like some. They're fine. They're overachieving. They're early, but you can catch them. There's still a bunch of talent on the Nationals that, like, the right move puts them right back there. And I just, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm more upset with the Nationals. Uh, I mean, the Nationals' whole thing is, it's strange because it, it just feels like they wore, didn't really have a clear direction going into the deadline. Obviously, when you were telling, when you're letting it be known through the media that Bryce Harper might be available the night before the deadline and in the morning of, you're like, actually, no, we're keeping him. That doesn't really suggest that you have a kind of um, set plan for the day. Um, I would say so, yeah. For their only move to be getting rid of Brandon Kinsler and for that to be apparently because they thought he was the guy leaking stuff about dysfunctional clubhouse also doesn't really suggest that you're totally on top of your game there. It's also not good when you hear the rumblings of like other either coaches or players or GMs. I forgot where it originated from, but like Davey Martinez might be in over his head uh, as a manager. That's not great. Well, and, the, what's, um, what's interesting to me about the whole Davey Martinez thing is that a lot uh, seemed like a lot of the complaints were or about Martinez about not knowing what he's doing was bullpen management. Um, they had a particularly bad habit of warming relievers up and then not using them. Uh, dry humping and the wonderful parlance of baseball. So it feels kind of, I'm not saying it's, it's it's not saying it's directly rated, but I, I, it does strike me as an interesting coincidence that two days after that, two relievers have been let go. You know, Brandon Kinsler got traded and Sean Kelly got DFA today for ostensibly uh, making a scene last night for having to pitch the ninth inning of a ridiculous blowout game. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I I do wonder if there is a sense there of Dave Martinez trying to, you know, go Michael Corleone on shit and just, you know, get rid of his political enemies, so to speak. Um, 
it's weird to think of Brandon Kinsler and Sean Kelly as political enemies, but here we are. It's just everything about the Nationals right now just feels like they're kind of just reactive. They're kind of reacting instead of being proactive, you know? Because like yes. you said, there was there was room there for them to do something. I mean, that rotation, granted... Mike Beers. Yeah, granted, that, Detroit, they're, they're going to get him available. Yeah. They're going to get transferred back at some point. But yeah, you would think there'd be some in some like move to get like at least some like middle tier to kind of you know fill in Dane back Duffy. end starter. I don't know. Yeah, like so you're not in a position where you have to start Tommy Malone because you literally don't have any other choices. Um, and I think the the one that really jumped out Marcus to me, Marcus Stroman was a tricky one to me. Like where it's like just call them. The Blue Jays are screwed either way. Maybe. <sighs> By low on him, I I don't know. Yeah. Well, the one the one that the one that jumped out to me was Wilson Ramos. The Phillies got Wilson Ramos yeah. for a player to be named later Cash, which means they got him for functionally nothing. It's either going to be some total nobody out of their minor league system or literally just money. The Nationals have gotten out of their catcher spot the worst production of any team in baseball. They're like historically bad production out of catcher this year. The combination of Matt Weeders and Pedro Severino. You're really telling me the Nats couldn't beat a player to be named later or Cash? Yeah, how's that we know they can. But, that's, but we know they can. But because, that's like the kind of thing they, that just yeah. suggests that, like, that they just did not have a plan this during this trade deadline. I don't know. Maybe, maybe for whatever reason, the Rays just didn't bother calling around to see if anyone could beat it. Figured we'll take the first good offer we can get for Wilson Ramos, and that just happened to be it. But how are the not on the phone with the Rays for a catcher that they already know too? A guy who's been with that team before, yeah. who everyone on that team likes, who's a productive hitter at the very least, not much of a defender, Wilson Ramos, he can hit. How are they not in contact with the Rays? Right now. And that's really, yeah, yeah. If, if, if their deadline had been nothing but getting Wilson Ramos and I guess also getting rid of Brandon Kinsler, everyone would have been like, okay, fine. Yeah, good, great, good job. You know, the whole Harper thing would still be kind of weird, but they would have at least addressed an issue. They didn't bother doing that. And that to me is just like, what is what exactly is going on with this team right now? Why are they not doing something as simple as just forking over a, a, a nobody minor leaguer for a guy who can help them when he's healthy? It, it's just power move by the Phillies, though, right? It was it was a, not only is, not only is Ramos a guy who can help them at catcher, but they do keep him away from the National. That's a really it was a really exactly. nice move by like, Philadelphia. I want to believe that that's the incentive there. They were like, you know what? This seems too natural for the Nationals to acquire this guy. They're dealing with like Bryce Harper stuff. Let's just go ahead and swoop in while they're uh, just <laughs> fumbling the snap and uh, we can uh, just take Ramos away from him. Yeah, it almost, I want to believe that was a thing. It almost feels like in fantasy football, like when you pick up a when a, when a running back gets hurt and you just rush to the waiver wire to pick up the, the second, right. the, the, the running back, the, the handcuff before, he's a, mm-hmm. before the guy who owns the hurt running back can. I, yeah, that sound like I've never played fantasy football in my life, but um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it it had that feel to it. The Phillies just kind of just it was just a block, if anything, more than else. But it also does help them. But to me, it's just the Nationals' deadline. I I didn't call them a loser in my column because I don't necessarily believe you know that keeping Harper is a mistake. I think we're only going to know whether or not it was a I mistake by the end of the I season. Like they lose though. They're a loser. They lost. They didn't get a catcher to replace this horrible production they didn't add a starter like they lost and i think i probably was not harsh enough on them but i will say that if obviously if harper you know goes on a tear and they do come back and win the division you know the, the, ultimately it'll be it'll be a, a good it'll have been a good deadline for them because they didn't get rid of harper but if they miss the playoffs and harper walks and all they end up getting for him is a fourth round pick or you know whatever exactly it is that they get through the qualifying offer system 
boy, are they going to regret not making this move because I don't necessarily know if they would have gotten, you know, the, the, the prospect hall to end all prospect halls, but literally any number of prospects would have been better than that draft pick. Um, we, of course we can only, we can only wait and see, but I, I do think if he does walk, they, that that is going to be a big, big second guessing on the part of Mike Rizzo for not making that move because certainly the Nats have the talent to be better, to win the division, to chase yeah. down either the Phillies or Braves, even just at least to win a wild card spot. But they really haven't shown they it. They have a 19-year-old that's mashing all year. Yeah, they had Juan Soto come out of nowhere. Juan Soto's having Look, quite just... literally I think the best season a teenager has ever had, which is crazy to think about. But like, I, I did like when Ken Rosenthal wrote that um, trading Harper would almost be like like using a defibrillator. Like it would just be a shock to the system to get this team kind of going again. Which I don't necessarily know if I agree with. I I, just, I do kind of like the idea, but dude, there are Braves fans that now think he's a cancer and they would not have uh, wanted to trade for him if he well, I, on the table. Like yeah. I like that um, the idea that trading Harper would be, you know, a, a thing that would cause like a fan uproar. But at the same time, you know, you get the sense that there are probably plenty of national fans who are like, no, whatever, who cares at this point? Like, just fine, trade him. Okay, okay. I think a lot of Nets fans have made I, their potential I don't understand that line of that. thinking, though. I just, he's too good. Like, he's having a down year, but like, you don't get guys like Harper very often. I just, I think you always see it through and you appreciate it. Kind of like the Orioles with the uh, Manny Machado stuff. It's just kind of sad where it's like, you just... You don't find guys like that very often, and um, once Harper's gone, like the Nationals will, like Rendon's a really good player, but he's not Bryce Harper. It's just, it's one of those things where I, I think it's gonna be really sad, and you're gonna look back and you're gonna be like, wow, we did not appreciate somebody like Harper enough. Like having a superstar for five plus years, it's really cool sometimes. It's it is, and I will. And also, Bryce Harper is not a is not a uh, cancer. Let's go ahead and nip that in the bud. And if you would be hesitant about trading Nick Markakis and uh, a couple other pieces for Bryce Harper, um, you're out of your fucking mind. Yeah, and, no, I, uh, I Bryce Harper was a brave this summer, uh, this winter. Yeah, sign me up. Yeah, I'm there's all the I, way here for that. Yeah, I, I would happily take Bryce Harper on my favorite baseball team. Happily, happily, happily. Yeah. Um, it, and the Red Sox need him. Like they're only forty games over five hundred. They're like, only only forty games over five hundred, and only have three All Star caliber outfielders plus JD Martinez. Yeah. So clearly, they have the space and the need. He could play first, right? Probably, honestly. Yeah, there's what's going to happen. Bryce Harper first baseman for the national uh, for the uh, Red Sox next year. That's what's happening. Calling it. This is a good prediction. I like it. Calling it right now. All right, John. This was great. I appreciate you taking the time as always. My um, pleasure. Uh, how excited are you for uh, the just the Pirates and Nationals <laughs> and everything else blowback that uh, we're surely going to receive from this podcast? Hey, you're the one who's going to get yelled at. I'm the one who's going to pretend I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> Fair enough. John, we can find you on Twitter at JATaylor5. We can read you at si.com slash MLB, where you just have your winners and losers piece up right now. So go check that out and read all of John's great stuff and SI always. Um, John, we will talk again soon. Thanks, man. Have a good one. All right. Welcome back to the podcast. The Ringers. Michael Bauman is here. And Michael, how bummed are you that we didn't get 
an AJ Preller is fucking going for it again moment before the deadline. Uh, we got more right before the deadline than I could handle. I've, I've said that the busiest hour of my year every year is between 3.30 and 4.30 on trade deadline day because I'm trying to finish up a column to go up as, as quickly as possible. Uh, yesterday I had to for a podcast we did right after the column went up and all the while i'm still trying to keep up with 35 different trades which apparently all happened within 10 minutes of the deadline so you know it it happens every year and i still haven't figured out a way to to plan for it to make it manageable i was listening to the assistant gm for the braves talk today about the trade deadline and how what goes into making a trade and it, it it's amazing to me that like there are some instances where he said like, yeah, there's some deals that take like two phone calls and it's done. And then there are others that it's months and months and back and forth. And I've never understood how like these 10 minutes before the deadline ended, they got it through. Like, how does that, I've never understood the mechanics involved there where it's like, it could be so extravagant and elongating on one end. And then in other ends, even if it's a gigantic trade can just be done with like a text message. It's, it's really bizarre. Yeah. Some of these things happen I think most of it has to do with negotiation and there is some mechanical um, sort of procedural stuff that you have to do, you know, with with financials and getting, you know, actually getting in touch with your scouts and figuring out which players you want from a given list of minor leaguers, for instance. And a friend of mine, Jay Kaplan, who's the Astros beat writer for The Athletic, wrote a, a good uh, oral history of the Randy Johnson trade uh, from 20 years ago. And there's a lot of that It's sort of coming together. At the last minute, I think some of these trades, the big trades that happen quickly are you just realize that this is on the table. And I think some there's a lot of time pressure, like everything that mm-hmm. that goes right down to the deadline. For instance, if Bryce Harper had moved 24 hours after the Nationals floated him, it wouldn't have been yeah. the first time that they had had trade discussions about Bryce Harper. You know, everybody talks about everybody. And it's just mm-hmm. this is the deadline. Well, somebody has to blink and somebody has to either say, OK, we're going to take on this money or give up this prospect or not. And that was the it's something that will break down the the natural roadblocks to, to these trades happening. And, you know, sometimes you have that first discussion and both sides are happy with it and they move on and, you know, they get it done. And sometimes these things are devolve into months long staring matches. You mentioned Bryce Harper and I appreciate you and your ringer piece, uh, mentioning the fact that, um, if the Indians did not do a Bryce Harper deal strictly because they did not want to give up Shane Bieber, um, that is something they're going to regret. And I feel like that's the most understated part of the deadline this week is that we're all talking about Chris Archer and the Pirates and John Taylor and I uh, talked this morning about it extensively. And uh, it's one of those things where I do understand like just because he would be a rental. It doesn't seem likely. And also the Indians, uh, a cheap team who have just always struggled with attendance and everything else. Like they're not going to re-sign Bryce Harper to whatever he's going to sign for this year. So if they had traded for him, it would have been a steep price. I get all that, but also like their windows closing. They're only like 10 games over 500. And I think they have a worse record than the Mariners and the A's right now. So, um, it's just it's already going to be hard enough for them to contend over the next couple of years because of just how good the Red Sox and Yankees and Astros are right now. And that was a piece you wrote earlier this year um, just on like the Red Sox have kind of exacerbated their 
depth in their farm system that's been rebuilt over the last couple of years. And Dombrowski has done a great job assembling a bunch of major league ready talent, but the the cupboard's getting barren now. And this is the team, and this is who they're going to have. And you know what? I think he's okay with it because they're forty give forty games over five hundred right now. Which uh, I, let me check my notes. Yes, that's very good. And the Yankees are there, so like the Indians are just a team that's like dancing around serious contention at a moment when it seems like they're in the last year or two. But then again. Maybe they're looking at everything of like, have you seen our division? Have you seen what the White Sox and Royals and everybody else are going to be doing for the next couple of years? The Twins just became sellers after going for it um, this offseason. Like, I, I just, I can't figure the Indians out. And I feel like they should have gotten more crap thrown their way for not doing a Bryce Harper deal. If that's really, as you pointed out, something that was on the table, if they had just agreed to surrender someone like Shane Bieber. Yeah, I think, I don't think a, a Harper for Bieber trade, and I hope I qualified it enough when I was talking about it, that that just felt like posturing to me. And, you know, maybe Harper isn't the the perfect fit. Honestly, I think the Indians are in a great position. It, you know, if I had to run any single team, it would probably... That's a that's, great position, what do you mean? Well... They're the best team in a in an incredibly easy division. I mean, they've, yes. they've they've had this. They they haven't played well, and they've had that that division locked up since May. And yeah. two of the team, the the, uh, the Tigers and the Royals, are in the tank for forever. It seems mm-hmm. uh, the White Sox haven't figured their stuff out. The Twins looked like they were going to be the challenger, but took a huge step back this year. Now you don't know what Miguel Sano or Byron Buxton is, and that it like if those guys don't come through, the Twins aren't going to be a threat either. They've got Clu- the Indians have Kluber locked up long term. They have Ramirez locked up long term. They've got plenty of time left uh, before Francisco Lindor hits free agency. They're going to cakewalk to that division title. I mean, at least it looks like this for the next two or three years so we also thought about this with the nationals right now this is this is a completely different situation there that this division is so much weaker than the national league east there was a there was always at least one one team breathing down washington's neck whether it was the braves or the uh or the mets you know the the mets actually reached out and got him and the or and the marlins were competitive a couple times you know uh before the the 2014-2015 season, I was really high on the Marlins back when they had Stanton and Fernandez and Yelich. And that that young core looked way better than anything that's going to come out of Detroit, Minnesota, or Kansas City for the next few years. And you know, maybe all this changes if Yohan Moncada turns into a six-win player and Lucas Giolito gets his fastball back. But I don't I don't know who who that team is. And you know, the we think we talked about it with the Nationals, but they won what you know uh, was it four division titles in six years something like that yeah that's that counts as dominance to me even though they didn't mm-hmm. uh, adva- advance out of the first round so just Cleveland has so much time they've had f- they're gonna have, end up having five months worth of runway to figure their stuff out to figure out their bullpen to make out or to to make that Brad Hand uh, Adam Simber trade figure out who's gonna be on that postseason roster to. Go out and get guys like Oscar Mercado. It, w- this was a deal that really went under the under the radar at the deadline because it didn't really involve any established big leaguers. But Mercado could be a contributor uh, as you know as soon as possibly the uh, the end of this season. He could wind up being on the playoff roster if everything breaks right for him. And they can make trades like that, take risks, give playing time to to young players to see how they develop that they're just going to walk into that division title as long as Lindor Ramirez and Kluber and you know Bauer and Carrasco are healthy and they've got it's just they don't have the economic might of the of the Yankees or the Red Sox or uh or the Dodgers but they've got such an easier path to the postseason and once you get in there 
it, it's just a complete crapshoot. Is yeah. you know, particularly if you've got Corey Kluber starting twice every playoff series. Were you surprised the Rockies and the Diamondbacks didn't do more? Um, I actually thought the Diamondbacks did pretty well. Uh, you know, we were talking about this on the pod yesterday. Uh, Eduardo Escobar might be the best non-Manny Machado position player to trade to change hands. Um, yeah. and he's going to fill a huge hole. His positional vers- versatility is huge. Troy Lavallo's had to get so creative with the way he's lined up. We've seen way too much of Nick Ahmed in uh, in outfield corners so far this year. So it's that's a great pickup. Even though they're rentals, and they did you know they did great in the rental market last year with JD Martinez getting two months of seven hundred slugging percentage for next to nothing. Um, Jake Diekman's a great pickup, a good clubhouse guy, uh, a low arm slot lefty who can, uh, get both left and right handed batters out. So I think the Diamondbacks did really well. Um, it just looks like they sort of fell behind because they didn't get the names they got weren't as big as, uh, Machado or Dozier. Exactly. Um, Colorado, it is a missed opportunity, but that's just such a complicated situation. I've got, I left them off of my, uh, yeah. Uh, winners and losers column just because they didn't, you know, the Sung Wan O deal sort of is what it is. That's not going to move the needle. That's not going to get them back in the race. So maybe this was a mixed opportunity or missed opportunity, but I don't know. I don't know what deals they had a chance to pull the trigger on and didn't. They weren't really big players for any of the, the big names that got bandied about at the deadline. So it's hard to judge what they decided not to do. I feel like they should have sold more on their bullpen just because of like the way Davis and everything else did not work out. And it turns out spending a lot of money on your bullpen this off season, if you're Colorado, not the best decision. So I don't think we're going to see them do that again anytime soon. But like, I would have just said, all right, screw it. Like we're not catching the Dimebacks or the Dodgers. Let's just like, it seemed like there's a premium on bullpen help. And I think they probably could have just moved a lot of those pieces um, because the, the starting pitching depth is so thin right now on the market that they could have maybe just like been, you know what? We spent a lot of money on these guys. They haven't worked out. Maybe we can move them for some more pieces and everything else. Do you think there was anything there or do you think it was just a wash at that point? No, I, I don't think you could sell at this point. I mean, they're, right now they're tied with the Dodgers. They're only a half game out of a playoff I spot. Know. So, but does it feel like it? No, it doesn't, but they are where they are. And, you yeah. know, you can't sell that to, to that fan base. I mean, True. You know, more than that, more than the, uh, public relations disaster like if you're this close to a playoff spot anything can happen particularly if you got nolan arenado in your lineup so you know they i this is a the pirates used to be really good at this you know sort of taking mediocre teams that that weren't as good as their record uh looks like and then neil huntington would make a couple head fake trades so Derek lee you know for nothing was was uh probably the best example of this just making a nod to the clubhouse and and the public that, Hey, you know, we're in this without really dealing, you know, big time prospects. And he's amazing at pseudo contention. Exactly. And And that's the kind of move that, you know, maybe, Oh, is that, uh, is that kind of, of player, but you know, I I really think they could have done more. They should have, you know what it is. I figured it out. Here's what they should have done. Jose Abreu. Like they've gotten so little production out of first base and it's a dumpster fire that like, do that. Can you imagine a Brayu in Colorado for a full season? I mean, it great. It would be great, but I don't know what they're, you know, who they yeah. who they give up. And that's that I mean, that's the thing. That's why Pittsburgh was so good at this was they could get, you know, guys above average, you know, average to above average players on on uh as rentals and not give up that much. I don't know how much a Brayu would run you in you know, in this yeah. trade market. 
Yeah, I don't know. We'll see what happens uh, there. Are you surprised at all that JT Romuto is still a Miami Marlin at this point? Um, I think I've decided not to be surprised by anything that happens in Miami. Uh, okay. <laughs> so I, I love that they were holding just like they wanted just the premium of the premium prospects from the Nationals for a deal for Romuto, but they accepted what they did for other guys in this roster, particularly uh, Christian Yelich, they, who they still had under control for several more years and uh, everything else. But yeah, they love him. They think like, you know, I was I had a conversation a year or two ago when the Stanton trade rumors first happened. This was had to be at least 18 months ago. And Uh and like they think that or they thought then that Rio Muto was a bigger building block for the next potentially good Marlins team than Stanton was. So they thought that like he was going to be the cornerstone, the the leader. Yeah. You know, if that's a comparison you want to draw. And, you know, I I love him as a player. I think he's great. But, Mm -hmm. you know, if. He's not. You traded everybody else, you know. Like exactly, I, yeah. I don't know why why they're still holding on to him, but you know, you look at. We've seen this happen so many times where, where teams held out for what looked at the time to be unreasonable returns. Um, you know, Cole Hamels to the Rangers is the is the example that I always come back to, where Ruben Amaro was was called all sorts of of unflattering things for holding on to Hamels because he wanted the right deal and it took him two years, but he finally got it. And you know, maybe that's what what happens with the Marlins and Rio Muto. But yeah, it's I'm I, I mean, if he was on the team on opening day, I guess it's not that surprising he's still there now. How did the Nationals end up with zero new catchers? I don't understand this. I mean, I guess because of the dysfunction between ownership and Rizzo, where it was like they weren't, they clearly weren't on the same page of what their post All Star break plan was and everything else and post trade deadline and just the fact that they're only five games out, but they're also a game under 500 and everything. You can just tell that there is so much going on. And I feel like there is a big story there at the end of the year where we're going to be like, oh my God. Like they literally just shipped a dude out because he, it was either a, you're with us or against this moment. Who's that? Sean Kelly. They did that with, uh, um, I mean, they did. That's, that was a reason reportedly why they shipped Kinsler out. Cause they thought he was yeah. the guy who was talking to the press about clubhouse dysfunction. And you know, he denies it. Jeff pass and he wrote the story denies it. So I mean, this is going to be what was the beer and chicken Red Sox here? Uh, 2011. Like it's going to mm-hmm. be that level of stories that come out, particularly if Davey Martinez or Mike Rizzo loses his job over this. Yeah, he was DFA'd uh, for a tantrum on the mound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sean Kelly was the glove throw, which is another bizarre situation because because he's he's been really bad over like he's he's good now, but he has been very bad in the recent past. And just choosing this moment, if it's a baseball decision uh, to let him go, unless that glove throw is just the straw that breaks the camel's back for for some other, uh, you know, uh, behind the scenes thing that will come out after he leaves town. Um, it's just a very strange situation and it's tough. You know, I, I, there's just so much pressure where it just feels like it's all boiling. Yeah. And I have a lot of sympathy for, for Rizzo and ownership hesitating to, to pull the trigger the way they have because they've built this team to contend and the window, they can see the writing on the wall now. And you know, it, that's just such a tough pill to swallow to, to turn from the overwhelming division favorite as recently as a couple months ago to a seller at the deadline. Like, you know, I can understand not wanting to, to, yeah, to flip that it. switch, but it. right, exactly. I, it's, uh, right. It's a tough, it's, I, I appreciate how tough that is uh, to make that decision, but Mike Rizzo gets paid a lot more money than I do to, to make that tough decision and to convince ownership of, of, uh, 
to make those tough tough decisions and they didn't do anything like if they had decided to try to hang on and, and claw back those five games like i think the phillies and braves can be had but they didn't make a move in either direction it's just they you know staying doing nothing will probably turn out to be the worst possible thing they could have done be honest how much do you think the phillies acquiring wilson ramos from the rays was just to keep him away from the nationals I think that's an area of need for the Phillies. And, you know, we'll yeah. see what the player to be named later um, ends up being. I I love Wilson Ramos. Uh, he's yeah. an incredible hitter for a catcher. He's good with pitchers. When I uh, profile Blake Snell, he credited Wilson Ramos with being a, a huge positive influence. You know, I think he'll be a, a good influence on Alfaro, who's who's uh, come along a lot with the glove. He's a much better defender than he was a year about a year ago, but he's still nowhere near you know, the batting eye is still a work in progress. Maybe Ramos taking a little bit of pressure off and would be good for Alfaro. Um, is there any way we could get click hole to step in and combine them, turn them into the, one person? Well, the bear, well, I was, this has been, I mean, this is a problem with catchers. I remember writing about this year, years ago. Um, who was the, it was Hank Conger and Evan Gaddis, uh, you know, between oh, wow. when they were on the okay. on the Astros together. If you put the mm-hmm. two of them together, they would have made the perfect catcher. And yeah. uh, it's just one of those situations that it's got to be super frustrating if you're a manager. You're like, what do I even pick today? It, Defense today or uh, like, I, I, I don't know. And it, That's got to be it, ad- it, it, incredibly it speaks, to, it speaks to how difficult it is to to catch how many difficult things you have to do to be a big league catcher. Um, right. And I mean, that's why guys like Jeff Mathis, who can't hit a lick, have 10 year big league careers. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to him. Keep getting them checks. He's not still getting checks, is he? I, I my coworker, Ben Lindbergh, is a huge Jeff Mathis fan. And I feel like I should know where he is right now. I feel like he's played in the big leagues this year. Uh, oh, my God. That's amazing. I, if he has, that would be incredible. Um. He yeah, is playing for the Diamondbacks yeah, right Diamondbacks. now. 41 games, 141 plate appearances. Still has, <laughs> uh, hitting 213, 300, 295 right in line with his uh, his career averages. So good for him. 14, 14 years NLE, in the big leagues. That's great. Jeff Mathis, um, one of a kind. Um, one other NL, NL East team that I wanted to touch on real quick. The New York Mets, who, I mean, just speaking of other teams that are just going to have all kinds of amazing off-season storylines and everything else like i their circumstances were a little bit different obviously with sandy alderson being away from the team and all that but it's just i feel like they're gonna really regret not even moving like zach wheeler or like degrom would have been very difficult but cindergard i think you could have sold that um just even cespedes or whoever like conforto brandon nimmo like there's just so many guys that i'm just I'm really surprised that they did. I guess I shouldn't be really surprised, but it does seem like them not moving anybody at the deadline is just like the kind of arrogance of like, we'll be back once we get healthy and figure things out and spend a little bit more next year or something like that, where the Wilpons really are going to double down on this group. Um, And then of course they lose 25 to four the following day. But um, yeah, I just, I, I can't get over the Mets just doing nothing either. Like that was just as surprising, I think, as the Nationals really ending up to do nothing. I don't think that's arrogance. And I don't think they had a terrible deadline. I probably would have moved Wheeler too if I were them. But I think the return they got for Asdrubal Cabrera is great. Um, if the familiar return, less so, but that that is what it is. I don't think that's a, a franchise altering trade loss one way or the other. And all those other guys you mentioned, you know, Cespedes with his injury, uh, Conforto struggling to stay he- uh, healthy, you know, Nimmo might, he's been in the majors, uh, 
so little he might be around the next time the Mets are good. And Syndergaard and DeGrom, you know, just those situations, I think, all lead themselves to toward trades in the offseason, uh, if at all. And so I don't, okay. you know, particularly with Alderson sick and, and no real one person calling the shots, I don't begrudge them staying put on most of those trades. But this whole thing is, you know, it, it's tough that, that Sandy Alderson – uh, had to had to take a leave of absence again for the. I mean, there there are more important things than, than baseball at work right. there, but yeah, you know, it's tough for the Mets. the The timing is bad right before the deadline, but there's nobody home. I mean, the the Wilpons have have mismanaged this team so comprehensively, and their their uh, method of incompetence is so contagious, and the just the the stories you hear coming out of that front office and the the way the team is run it's just it, the the story about Nick Francona and the, and the veterans um veterans benefit day just little things it's just very very bush league very obviously mismanaged i mean like i feel like everybody's worked at one job where the where the boss or the the uh most senior manager yeah is sort of insecure doesn't know what they're doing and just imagine that multiplied by several billion dollars and a a very public fishbowl in what they in which they operate and it's just you know there's a what the Wilpons are doing in that club is contagious top to bottom and you see this like Mickey Calloway was the consensus best assistant coach uh he was a favorite for for pretty much every managerial opening had been for years looked like the perfect fit for that team and he just goes in there and doesn't know doesn't look like he knows what he's doing and the the comparison to other rookie managers like Alex Cora and Aaron Boone who are doing very well in their first years Tori Lavallo doing very well in his first year last year it's just so stark and like it's it stands out all the more now than it would have 20 years ago because most teams are sort of competent in a boring corporate way these days and the Mets are just a circus and this there used to be three or four of these franchises uh at any given time at at other points in baseball history but they stand out now because they're so behind the times I think that's every sport now I feel like where every just about every team especially in the NBA now it just like there's maybe one or two just bad front offices left like every team's just super smart and (laughs) um I don't know if that's a good thing for sports or not I feel like it's not but um, cause we do enjoy the Billy Kings of the world far more than we enjoy, like just a, I mean, I'm a Sixers fan, game. so I didn't enjoy Billy King very much, but <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, not the best. Um, who do you think lasts longer in New York? Are Manaya or Steve Mills? Um, I don't know. That's a, I think they're there for 50 years minimum, right? Who knows? Um, I love that dynamic, by the way, I'm definitely keeping track of the Omar Manaya just being around like I think he's going to eventually like get complete control again. I think that's where this is heading in New York. He's he's a well-liked baseball guy. He's got yeah. that same level of Sandy Alderson gravitas. Um, I think he's I mean, getting power back. I think it's going to happen. I think you could. T- you know what? If if you could talk yourself into it, I'm, I'm not going to try to talk you out of it. Um, yeah, I think that's where this goes. Richardi stays like as a second lieutenant and like i don't think their assistant gm who i'm named john rico it's the starship troopers guy that's right um he's never gonna get the full title it seems like he's just always going to be like in the front office so the only person that makes sense as the next figurehead if alderson leaves permanently is manaya and just oh man i I don't i don't think that i don't think that i mean that's it's just what i was talking about i don't think that happens in 
maybe 28 other front offices. I think in mo- yeah. most other places, either Rico or Ricciardi gets the, uh, gets the reins, but this is the Mets and, and the Wilpons know Mania. I mean, that's why they brought him back in the first, in the first place. So, yep. I think it's Mania. Sorry, Mets fans. It's not great, but, um, Hey, maybe, maybe it'll change one day. Maybe, um, last thing and then we'll go, um, give me your number one winner from the deadline and your number one loser. Oh boy. I got a, remember what I said yesterday. Uh, my number one winner, I think, is the Dodgers. I mean, it's, yeah. it's sort of reductive. They got the best player at the deadline. And mm-hmm. and particularly at a deadline where, you know, we could see the Justin Verlander trade part two, uh, you know, and somebody huge moves in August after the waiver deadline. But as it stands right now, they got the best player. They got the only impact player. I'm not that high on Chris Archer. You know, you want to talk about maybe some of the relievers who change hands like Brad Hand or Roberto Osuna for all his uh, uh, alleged shortcomings as a human being is still a great closer, you know, but the, you know, the is he di- going to play this year. Yeah, he's going to he's going to play next week. Um, so they're actually going to play. Him. Yes. Oh, my God. I mean, they, they oh, traded. Okay. They didn't trade as much as they should have. I was going to say because he imploded the guy they traded to Toronto. Um, <laughs> cussed out uh, Ken <laughs> Giles. Yeah. Get pulled. Yeah. Ken Giles. Yeah. I think he's uh, going to bounce back. I think he's going to be pretty okay. good. Just like his his time in Houston was just so and I saw a lot of it up close living down there. But his time in Houston was just so complicated that I think he just sort of ran out of gas. And you see that with, you know, some, yeah. some teams and players, just the, the relationship runs sour. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, like I was saying, the Dodgers, they're, they got the only impact player who moved and that's huge. And they're in a crowded playoff race right now themselves. And I think that right now on talent, they're about level with the Cubs for favorites in the, the NL playoffs if they make it. Um, so I have to to call a, a lot of teams have really good deadlines, but if I had to pick one, that's L.A. And the the losers, um, Washington, because like I said, it, yep. they needed to do something. And I you could defend the hard sell even if you don't get rid of Harper. I mean, there are reasons to keep Harper, even if you don't think there's a chance of making the playoffs, just if you think that's going to help you resign him or maybe you just don't want to take that that hit and prestige. I mean, that's a perfectly defensible reason to not trade a guy like that, but they didn't do anything. And there are so many free agents to be who they just punted on making decisions on and they cost themselves a lot. Of, and if that's the decision or that's the direction they decide to go, they cost themselves. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say depending on who they might've gotten back for guys like Gio Gonzalez or Calvin Herrera, if they had flipped him, um, but they cost themselves huge in terms of prospects and money by not making that hard decision, or they cost themselves a chance to get back in the playoff race by not making a big trade to try to get all that five game, uh, that five game, ba- five game gap back all at once. That's fair. I'll say like two under the radar ones for one of each. Uh, under the radar winner is the Rays, just because they got a they had a great deadline for relatively nothing. Mm-hmm. Like getting Tommy Pham for what they got for him, and then ending up with Austin Meadows and. Uh, Tyler Glass now. Yeah. And a player to be named later. So who who reportedly is significant. Yeah. Yeah. And Ken Rosenthal called it two years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to him. (laughs) Um, And then a big loser. It just has to be the Nationals. I agree with you. Like, there's just no way around it. Like, it's just sad. But also a sneaky bad one was the Brewers not acquiring a starting pitcher. I actually think think that's a missed opportunity. And I would have had them as a big loser, but I think getting scope at the deadline, they needed somebody to fill in a shortstop. Like they just, their, their infield situation is so weird. And that, you know, if, if they, they were in on Machado and they missed out and, you know, if you go for him and you'll lose, that's, 
there's only so much you can do. And maybe that, you know, that impact pitcher didn't move. You know, Archer was probably the best pitcher to change hands and it took a lot. And he's not as good as what, I mean, he's good, but he's not as good as what the, what the pirates gave up. And, you know, Jay Happ isn't going to fix that rotation. It would have had to be something like a Keston here or a Corbin Burns and then some for Jacob DeGrom. And maybe that trade just wasn't out there to be made. And so, you know, I, I, it, it all comes down again to, to the counterfactual. what, what moves could have could have been made, but but weren't. And, you know, I, I don't see the obvious trade that the Brewers could have made for a starting pitcher for an impact starting pitcher and didn't. And I think getting scope and Moustakis at the very end, um, it does something. It helps. OK, fair enough. Michael Bauman, I appreciate you taking the time. This was great. Um, we can read you at the ringer dot com. Oh. And it's been a treat reading you all season covering major league baseball so um do that oh also listen to the ringer mlb show which you are now the primary host which has like zach Krim and a bunch of other great guests every bill simmons week. on this week to, to talk oh, that is he? Yes. okay talk about the red sox not acquiring a we talk about a lot of stuff you wanted to talk about okay. the Orioles, so really yeah okay it's got a um finger on the pulse of, of the entire league okay there you go all right michael this has been great and uh Good luck with the rest of the season, and let's talk again soon. All right. Thanks for having me on. All right. Eric Thompson of the Daily Norseman, the Vikings beat writer superstar. He is, uh, I think, recorded every single training camp that the Vikings have done this year. He is invested in everybody. He's keeping up with Stefan Diggs getting paid. Adam Thielen trying to be the number two wide receiver in football again this year. Kirk Cousins doing things. There are apparently soccer players that have infiltrated Minnesota um, during this <laughs> training camp season. Eric, it's been a bit, but uh, we're back. It is great to be back, Chase. So what have you seen? Like you've been at training camp a bunch. Like what are some big takeaways from uh, Vikings land right now? Um, well, there is, well, I guess is it's as positive as you can pop possibly get still being minnesota vikings fans i think it's it's still the cautious optimism there's still the concern about the offensive line especially since two of the starters are currently out right now everything else though is pretty hunky-dory there i mean the digs re-signing the only thing uh you know out of the after signing cousins there were four major players um still left to to re-sign on the vikings and I think most Vikings fans would have been happy with two, maybe three, and there's already three, and now people are getting greedy and saying, let's go after Anthony Barr. So uh, spirits are pretty high around Vikings camps, but so are expectations, and uh, I think with good reason, because there is this is at least since probably the, the 98 team, I think this is the, I think actually it might be even better than that top to bottom, especially on the defensive side of the ball. This might be one of the most talented Vikings rosters you know of the last 20 to 30 years yeah and i mean they just uh, vikings fans it's okay you can buy in because like you've won the division two of the last three years it's becoming like it used to yeah. be packers division and now it's kind of flipped a little bit the one thing i will say and this is something that i would agree with with the cautious optimism and we should mention that we're going to be talking about our favorite nfc north storylines right now and this division i think has the potential outside of like the afc south to be the most competitive division in football this year and I think that's an issue. Like the Vikings, everything went right. Like even losing Sam Bradford after week one, it felt like, oh, this is just not their year. Bridgewater's not there. No Bradford. Now it's Case Keenum, a career journeyman. And then he 
got hosed off from the Jeff Fisher experience, and he was fine. Like him and Nick Foles, they uh, they moved on to bigger and better things, and it was fine. They even played each other in the NFC title game, which is still kind of insane. <laughs> but um, I just. I think it's fine. Like the Vikings, everything is great except for the right side of their offensive line, which is a little concerning. Um, just what, where were you at with that? Because they drafted a, I believe an offensive guard in the second round this year to try and fill it. Yeah. yeah um, they've drafted Brian O'Neill uh, in the, in the second round. He's, he has been uh, mostly the backup right tackle, but um, Rashad Hill, the, the presumed starter at least starting the season at right tackle who of course it's who is an okay tackle but he, he's not going to wow anyone um but brian o'neill has been filling in because rashad hill had a stomach bug for a couple days and he was kind of in and out of practice so yeah that was in but he you know by all accounts is probably more of a project I mean, he's not really anticipated to start at least um right away this season it's got all the agility and athletic ability but just not a ton of experience at right tackle I actually played a lot of tight end in college mm. so um, so it's one of those, he's, he's got the, all the athleticism, oh, but he's got to polish up the college. T- I think that's you know what? I, that if was you the, tight yeah, end, you also I, played basketball. Right. I thought, I, I thought that was mandated, but mm-hmm. I don't believe he okay. did, but I'm sure he's I'm really good concerned. at it still. I'll say that. Um, <laughs> how I'll give you 30 seconds. Would you like to rant about how selfish it was for Joe Berger to retire this off season? <laughs> well, after seeing him at training camp, it's really hard to begrudge him. He has a bunch of kids, and he did the the amazing thing where, hi, I'm an offensive lineman. I retired, and then the next time you see me in the public, I've lost forty pounds. That's amazing. So, yeah, um, yeah. So, if the Vikings are desperate enough to call Berger up, uh, he is going to politely say no. I think he looked really happy and seemed pretty content. Um, I know a couple of the writers chatted with him quick uh, at, when he was at camp the other day, and he. He seems very content with uh, being on this side of the sidelines these days. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't have to deal with uh, the Vikings offensive line coming back down to earth because that's been the thing um, that I know you're very aware of is that they've had offensive line troubles for years and years, and um, they finally figured it out last year. And it turns out when you have a good offensive line, it really helps. Uh, a clean pocket helps quarterbacks like Case Keenum and Sam Bradford and guys like that. Um do good things and find guys like uh, Stefan Diggs and Adam Thielen and Dalvin Cook out of the backfield and Jarrett McKinnon and everything else. But um, Stefan Diggs, like he, I don't think he even need, it doesn't even matter who is at quarterback. I think, I think it's amazing that it's gotten to this point, but I think he is like, I think he was number one in uh, balls caught uh, contested balls caught last year where it's yep. just like, he's one of those guys who just, he's very Antonio Brownian that people don't really realize yet. It's for whatever reason. And maybe it's the marketing or whatever. Um, and this is something Harrison Smith should also look into because he's like the best safety that no one's ever heard of. And, um, a lot of it goes to just how they're marketing themselves. Like Jalen Ramsey already doing the Revis Island stuff. I don't know if you've seen like all the marketing and branding he's been putting in, uh, this off season, but he is, owning up to being the next Daryl Rivas and uh, it's going to work because I think he's going to end up being a big superstar. He's the best man coverage corner in uh, the NFL right now. And uh, Stefan Diggs, I think is outside of Antonio Brown. He might be the scariest wide receiver who can do literally anything right now. And uh, it doesn't seem like a lot of people know yet. Yeah. I think the two big knocks that, that all the detractors of giving Diggs a new deal have are his injury history, which is really overblown. He has been knocked up or um, knocked up, <laughs> banged up a little bit. Uh, 
in his career, but he's missed only a, in his first three years of his career. He's missed a grand total of five games to injury. That's not you know a, a big flashing red light as far as an alarm goes. And uh, the other part is he hasn't technically had a thousand uh, yard uh, receiving season yet. He's he's come very close, and I think uh, he unless something goes wrong with injuries, uh, he, he should probably surpass that this year. So it, he hasn't had the, the vet, you know, just the bulk numbers production that a lot of other wide receivers have. But I think this new deal is actually really good for both the team and the, the player, because I think the, his 14, it's just a little over $14 million a year puts him right around ninth, I think. And as far as wide receivers go, as far as average salary per year, you know, that could change a little bit depending on the details of the contract. But, um, I think you know he's not quite a top ten volume receiver yet, but I think that you know he is only 25 years old, and the Vikings are just like with Daniel Hunter's new deal. They're they're paying for what they anticipate is the next step for that team is taken because both with Hunter and Diggs, if they had a great year this year and uh, found free agency, I think both of them would be commanding closer to you know that 17, 18 million dollars a year. So if we look back and both players stay healthy and produce, I think we're going to look at these deals being kind of a bargain for the team yeah and um it's it's gonna be fun to see so let's start with the vikings we've talked about them already a little bit let's start with your team um our favorite storylines my thing that i've just been thinking about a lot this offseason is just like kirk cousins was like we saw what he is without a really good supporting cast around him when the entire running back faction in washington went on ir last year he really struggled and when mm-hmm. they just didn't have he couldn't get josh dotson on the field and that's not his fault but um a lot of guys, when Jordan Reed's not playing, when he doesn't have the help, it's like the Andy Dalton zone, where if you don't have elite talent surrounding him, it he looks significantly worse. But can you win a title when you do surround him with top playmakers at just about every spot? Of course. I don't know which one Kirk Cousins falls in yet. I don't know if he's someone that can jump into that top 10 group or if he's someone that belongs in that 14, 15 kind of echelon. Like, I this is going to, I feel like, I don't want to upset you, Eric, but I think there is a strong possibility, maybe not strong, but a, I'll say like a 45% chance we look back at the end of this year as Kirk Cousins being the worst quarterback in the NFC North. I think that's in play. A division, a division that still contains Mitchell yes, Trubisky, I, right? Look, we're going to get the Trubisky, okay. but like okay. the Nagy stuff, okay. Allen Robinson, like Tariq Cohen, the amount of playmakers that they have surrounded Trubisky in year two. I, like Matt Nagy's there. They have Mark Helfrich, college guy in there. They're going to be doing so much crazy stuff that I, I just, uh-huh. I, I, it might be something that's not sustainable year over year. But like, if you were to tell me that Trubisky has a better statistical season than Kirk Cousins this year, I would, I would buy it right now. I think that's, it's going to happen. Absolutely not. Because <laughs> look, you, you're, you're talking about the, okay, we'll, we'll get to the yeah. Bears in a little bit. And I do like their, they're they're doing that the the Jared Goff yes. thing with the Rams are doing they're they're surrounding him with talent the Vikings kind of have quite they a bit do. too remember that uh, guy coming in the backfield uh, Dalvin Cook yep. they have probably the best one two you know arguably the best one two combo of wide receivers in the league Kyle Rudolph is still a very effective tight end and Kirk Cousins is better at football especially at this okay. point of their respective careers I'm I'm, I'm not I, I still think Trubisky can develop he can take that jump that Goff did last year. But there's, I just can't see it. I, I think that, especially, and we'll get to it with the Bears too, there's still a lot more question marks on their defense than there are with the Vikings. 
so maybe yeah, if Trubisky's putting up, uh, you know, Blake Bortles garbage time numbers every week, <laughs> that's maybe one thing. I don't but think he will because like I can see defense is too good. They were a top ten defense last year, I think. Like Vic Fangio uh, is still there. Like they have a lot of talent. Like Roquan Smith is entering the fold. Like the Bears are going maybe, like six maybe, and ten this year. Maybe entering the fold. Yeah, I don't know, man. Yes. Oh, it's- this division no, is super and- tight. I think that's the one thing that people like when you submit like, oh, Aaron Rodgers is back, and I'm one of those people who fall in this category where it's like, I think the Packers are winning this division this year if Rodgers plays 16 games, but like, I think it's gonna be tight. The Lions have won a lot of regular season games over the last five years. They are a team that just doesn't have bad years anymore, and Stafford is kind of like too good for this team to like fall off a cliff. And I, I, I don't know. I think it's gonna be really tough. I, I could totally see a nine and seven division winner this year out of the NFC North. I think it is going to be one of the most competitive divisions because they're just, yeah, I think all four teams have have a case to at least make a playoff yep. push if everything breaks right. Of course, the Packers, you know, yeah, you just say two words, Aaron Rodgers, and that's automatically you're, you're competing for the playoffs. Vikings, we've already talked about their roster. And, yeah, the Lions have just been hanging around with that, you know, the 8-8, and 10-6, 9-7 and record, and they, they have a lot of, you know, skilled pieces in place as well. And the Bears, that's the only thing that's making me a little nervous if I'm a Bears fan is that everyone is picking them to be kind of that sleeper team that makes the big yeah. jump. But we did that with the Rams, I mean, though. Yeah. I think everybody thought, like, yeah. like, adding Wade Phillips to run the defense, getting Sean McVay and what he did with Kirk Cousins um, in his one year of play calling in uh, um, Washington. Like, it does feel like. I don't know. There's a lot of playmakers there, and I'm not saying I would bet on it, but it's just they're going to be so much better. And actually, just more enjoyable because the Bears won a football game last year where Mitch Trubisky did not complete one pass to a receiver. Like, that happened. I watched the Bears and uh, Falcons game, and it was uh, it was terrible. It involved, like, Mike Glennon doing stuff at the goal line. It went to the wire. It was all. It was all bad. I'm, I'm not going to miss well, they- the John Fox era of Chicago Bears football. Yeah, and they also lost the game to the Vikings where Sam Bradford played the entire first half on one yeah. leg. So, yeah, <laughs> they, they, they were a kind of a sorry sight last year. And, yes, I, I think there's little doubt that they will be better. Just to the degree that they're going to be better is still the question. And I think it really does revolve around the development of Trubisky, if he can make that next so what's step. your biggest storyline for the Vikings? I think, I mean, if I, I, I hate to be negative here, but I think it's, it's the offensive yeah. line because Pat Elfline, the center, started on the pup list. Seems like he's making good progress. We've seen him on the sidelines kind of doing some uh, agility and jumping. And it looks like, you know, he's he's definitely moving around out there. He's not just uh, uh, hanging around on the sidelines. But it, it, having him out and now Mike Rammers went down yesterday at practice, who is slated to be the starting right guard, even though he played mostly right tackle last, last year. The team seems to like him more at right guard. I'm a little on the fence, but I think it's maybe more of just a – getting the best five offensive linemen. Anyway, two of the starters are out, at least for the short-term future, probably. And we've already talked about Brian O'Neill. There's Danny Isadora, the second-year guard out of Miami, who has shown some promise, but he still looks like he needs to develop a little bit. Uh, They picked up Tom Compton from the Bears, who has been okay at best, I guess, throughout his career, who you'd like him as a, you know, as a sixth, person in the rotation maybe to fill in in the middle of the line but having him as a starter might be a little more iffy so yeah i mean if and of course case keenum is a lot more mobile and he made a lot happen after uh protection broke yeah. down then Kirk cousins is probably capable i think cousins is a lot 
more capable of reading defense a little more quickly and maybe getting the ball out of his hands more quickly mm-hmm. than, than Keenum. But it is. It, I really think if the team, if the Vikings do have that one Achilles heel, it is the offensive line because they are pretty loaded at most of the other places. Of course, it's the NFL. You could get depleted in any position area, except maybe a, a, for uh, at corner for the Vikings. There are. A legit six to seven cornerbacks that probably have a, a good say to make uh, the roster, and they they might have to cut uh, one of those down That's a good line. But like their secondary is fine. Of, oh, of course, Newman is uh, is he fifty four now? How is he still like around? Terrence Newman still it's not even that he's still around, but he's actually still okay. He's fine. Yeah, and he's still having a pretty decent camp. Yeah. He's definitely not that uh, you, you know better not quite as spry. See this. <laughs> well, it. It's definitely not out of the question because there's uh, Holton Hill, the undrafted free agent out of Texas, who the, the talent was never really questioned, but he had a lot of off-the-field stuff. So far, has been uh, keeping his nose clean, and he's really impressed in, uh, Mike Hughes. in practice. Mike Hughes, of course, who has looked great. He, looks, he doesn't look like a rookie out there, which is, you know, corner, especially when you're playing a lot of slot corner, is one of the tougher positions to learn as you make the transition to the NFL. But he's just sticking to guys like Lou. And he's still not really getting a ton of first-team reps because Mackenzie Alexander is having a really good camp in his third year. And then when you have Trey Waynes and Xavier Rhodes on the outside, that's just, I mean, there's no really terrible picks you can make in that secondary. But, it, again, that's the, I think the defense is going to be great. What's Antoine? Unless there's a um, – just hanging out. Well, his, I believe his son is with the Minnesota Gophers oh, still. Okay. I there think that was don't don't quote me on that. I know a former Vikings corner has a son that's on the Gophers, but okay. I'm pretty sure it's him. Sorry, but, sidebar. When we were talking yeah. about corners, I just had him <laughs> on my mind. Like he is the most memorable Vikings cornerback of like the last twenty years for me. Little guy who could yep, tackle amazingly. Like it was always weird. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. But yeah, I mean that that's and maybe a linebacker. They're pretty thin after. Uh, Anthony Barr and Eric Kendrick. So if one of those goes down for a while, that could be a little bit of trouble. But everywhere else, they are they they seem to be in pretty good shape, except for maybe that offensive line. So, but if if they can just be okay, and again, Kirk Cousins doesn't have to be the Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Drew Brees level. He just has to be good and consistent and kind of take care of the ball. And I think that's kind of I, I think of all the options the Vikings had. Kirk Cousins had the highest floor out of those options. He might not, you know, Keenum could still have another great year in Denver. Maybe he just kind of everything clicked for him. But it also, there was definitely the real possibility that last year's Keenum season was just lightning in the bottle. And he he definitely got bailed out a lot by Thielen and Diggs making some ridiculous catches yeah. that last season, too. So, um, specifically, you remember yeah, I mean, that's, having a ridiculous back of the end zone uh, touchdown catch against the Panthers, I want to say. Oh, that was that one was overruled. Uh, yeah, by but the I think way. it no, was but overruled, but it definitely shouldn't have been. I remember there being a conversation about yes. it. Yeah, that was yes, sick. that was the one. And but there there were three or four where Keenan was scrambling all over the place and did the you know threw across his body, just kind of looked like they were playing a game of five hundred, yeah. and you know every Vikings fan's going no, and then all of a sudden <laughs> someone catches. He's it, an so. all time like no 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 yes guy. Absolutely. So yeah, I mean that's the Vikings. It's it's really about that offensive line if they can just. Um, stay relatively healthy and find the best kind of five-man combination with what they have and be middle of the road to even a little bit below average. I think this offense it can do a lot of damage, and the defense should be they should pick up where they left off, maybe even be slightly better this year. 
Okay. Let's move to the Packers, a team you're very familiar with and that you love. Big Packers guy, Aaron um, Thompson. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, my biggest storyline that I'm monitoring that I think is going to be fascinating is that they finally moved on from Dom Capers, which is a net positive, I think, no matter what. But Mike Pettin was oh, gone. Abs- absolutely. Like he was yes. gone. And I'm always I, a little I, bit, I want to say dubious, but it is just, there's something about a guy who's been away from football and then gets added, thrown back into the mix because the NFL changes quickly. And I mean, he was obviously an incredible defensive coordinator with Rex Ryan in New York. And then I don't think he got a fair shake in Cleveland to say the least, but um, I don't know. I'm interested to see how this defense looks because I'm not worried about the offense. I don't think they'll miss Jordy Nelson at 33 years old. I think Devonte Adams has established himself as a clear number one guy. And with Cobb and everybody else, I think they'll be fine. Like I, it's just, they have Jimmy Graham now in the fold, like the Packers they even have a deep running game for the first time in like 15 years since Amon Green was there. Um, <laughs> It's it's weird that that's the case, but um, yeah, uh, what's James Starks up to? But anyway, um, <laughs> they drafted two rookie corners in the first round. and well, One in the first round, Jair Alexander, and then Josh Jackson at the top of the second round. And both those guys are going to compete with Tremont Williams, who had a weird career resurgence in Arizona last year, and he's back at 35 years old. Um, you still yeah. have Kenny King, and it's just their secondary has been a dumpster fire for years now. And I'm interested to see how much Wilkerson rejoining uh, Petten on the defensive line with Daniels and everybody else, like how much of a difference that makes so that there's less pressure on that secondary to be really good. But this division is loaded at quarterback and explosive offenses. And when you have to deal with Thielen and Diggs, you have to deal with Golden Tate, Marvin Jones and Galladay. And then you have to deal with Allen Robinson now. Like that's a lot of firepower on the outside. And I'm, interested to see like just how it all works do they start the young guys right away do they throw because they're both right. undersized they're little guys um in terms of cornerback play and i mean i love josh jackson that's what i wanted the falcons to take in the first round but like it i'm interested to see how this all works and if um it takes a year for petten to get acclimated and the defense doesn't uh, measure up as much as people are expecting in year one yeah, I kind of agree on all fronts there because I, I mean, I really do like the the picks that the Packers made. They addressed needs obviously with those first two picks, and man, they get a haul even for trading back too. I mean, that that was you get you get two guys at a need position and you get a couple draft picks kicked back to you. That that was a that I I hate to admit it, but Green Bay did really have a, a solid draft. The addition to Jimmy Graham is pretty big, I think, just because you know they've been searching for that go to. Uh, red zone tight end for Rodgers it seems like for the last eight or nine years and they've with with very mixed results um I think the the one thing on that defense is the season ending ending injury to Jake Ryan it's going to be tough because he was uh really kind of the anchor in the middle of that run defense um their front four or well I guess they're I shouldn't say front four because they're on a three four yes um I, I that is a pretty solid lineup you have Clark and Daniels and Wilkerson that's going to be tough to run on the middle, and they can create some pressure up the middle as well. But yeah, it's I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of excited for the Vikings for the fact that they play at Lambeau in Week Two this okay. year, just because I think it's going to it's going to take those new corners yeah. a little bit of time to get acclimated. Just I mean, because like we just discussed with uh, Mike Hughes, who's coming along well, but you never know until uh, the games actually start. It's corner is a tough position to learn in today's NFL, just because the 
the type of uh, you know coverage. There's a lot more press in, in the pros, and the, and I I do like Alexander, and I think that he'll be a, a very good player, and I think that Josh Jackson will be very good as well. But it it probably is going to take a little bit of time for this defense to gel again with a, a new coordinator. On the other hand, the Vikings are also coming with a brand new quarterback and brand new uh, offensive coordinator in John DiFilippo. So uh, there's going to be a lot of working out the kinks. And I think what the NFL has taught us in the last several years is don't invest too heavily in the results in September because now with all these limited practice yes. times and yep. just the, with, the, with everything getting cut down on the preseason, it's kind of tough to really get your bearings as a team, I think. I think the... the a month in, of course, if you're starting 0-4, you might already be done. But if, you, if you're hanging around at 2-2, two and two, you've looked, there's some areas of the team that might not be there already. That's, uh, I think, uh, these early season games, I, it's, it's, I just caution that, you know, you do want to jump in and read too much into the results. But, yeah, I think the, the, the Packers, again, if you have Rodgers, anything is possible. I, you know, losing someone like Jordy Nelson, I think he was – I'd be very surprised if he does a whole lot in in Oakland. I think Aaron Rodgers helped make his career quite a bit, and I think you know just what is he thirty two or something like that coming off yeah thirty three um, coming off a couple of serious injuries. I'd be surprised if he did a whole lot. So yeah, it's there's a reason why the Packers are neck and neck as far as the Vegas odds go with the Vikings for winning the division because they should be a, a tougher team. And yeah, I couldn't agree more. I. Me personally, as a Vikings fan, I, I'm going to miss Dom Capers so severely <laughs> because he he played so many people so out of position just because he had his old antiquated system. So, a Pedden will have to do something catastrophic to be worse than what Capers was setting up his defense at. Or was it so was it more ridiculous than um, what's his name? Oh, Greg Williams lining his safeties and corners like 40 yards off the line of scrimmage last year. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's. I actually made a joke about that yeah. on Twitter because uh, Rick Spielman, uh, the Vikings GM, he always likes to watch practice about forty yards behind the defense, <laughs> and I'm like, it's, I made some some comment along that Spielman is playing at Cleveland Browns cornerback or safety depth right now. So that's awesome. Um, the Lions, maybe the most fascinating team to me in this division. I like the Bears. We'll see. It's a wait and see thing. But like, we know really what we have in Detroit. Like, they just. They had a really weird offseason, and I've gone back and forth on this, where it's like they've doubled down on their offensive line. They drafted the Arkansas guy in the first round, the center, but it looks like he's going to play guard right away in yep. Detroit. So they rebuilt. The Ragnar, yeah. Yep. Rebuilt, and the other guy's name, another very offensive line name. Um, who was their other big addition? I think it's another guard or center. It was Glasgow, yeah, like wasn't it? The names center? they're yes. adding. It's very offensive lineman. Graham Glasgow is one of the names. Uh, like, what, what is this? Um, but they added LeGarrette Blunt. They added Carrion Johnson in the second round. They still have a, still technically have Amir Abdullah before he gets injured again. And <laughs> Riddick, I think, is still in the fold. Like they have doubled down. He on still the exists, game, yeah. And I, it just feels like we've moved so far away from that. Where it's like, what made the lines better is like Stafford has a sixty-six completion percentage since Jim Bob Cooter has taken over. You have Golden Tate. You have Marvin Jones, the best deep threat receiver maybe in football right now. Um. I just I and Xavier Rhodes kryptonite by yeah. the way he's the he was the one receiver that got to Rhodes okay. last year so that's good to know and that's nice because he'll play them twice this year like there's just mm-hmm. I wonder with them if 
like this doubling down into the run game. I mean, I love Carrion Johnson. I think he's actually going to be really good. Like, there's a lot of Kareem Hunt potential there. Uh, I, I would not be surprised if Carrion Johnson's like really good right away um, in Detroit. But I just, I don't know. I just kind of wonder of like, okay, you're you've made this concerted effort to kind of go back to the run game and build from that. And um, I don't, I don't know if it works, but that's the storyline that I'm most fascinated by of their. Uh, commitment to the run game and I wonder if they abandoned it early in the season where it's like oh yeah you can't win football games when you run a bunch early and then decide to pass and then put Stafford in these situations where he's having to play from behind or um, having to do a lot more later in the games because they were um, stubborn and running the football up the middle with Blunt and uh, Abdullah and everybody else for uh, first and second downs too much Uh, I, I don't know I think it's interesting yeah, I mean, maybe they're just throwing all these bodies at running backs in the hopes that one of them can at least run for one 100-yard game, you know, because they have that ridiculous streak of, I I think it's still active. They, it's been years and years since the Detroit Lions have had a 100-yard runner in yeah. a game. And uh, it's it's a little curious. I'd, I'd like to see exactly how they use it, because you know, they do have some legitimate players now in the backfield, but... It just seems like the Lions have always been that pass-first team, and they do have the weapons on the outside. I think Galladay is pretty nice. Uh, Golden Tate, of course, and uh, Marvin Jones. Like, I think if I remember right, the the Lions have three wide receivers named Jones because mm-hmm. there's T.J. Jones, Marvin Jones, and then there's another oh, one. I didn't know this. Okay. Yeah. But, did you yeah, also know, at least right now. Back, did you yeah. know that uh, Golden <laughs> yeah. Tate's sister is uh, dating uh, Jalen Ramsey? I. I don't think I did actually. Was there, are they are they just about to have a kid? Uh, Is that the, the one, one where yeah, he left camp for? Okay. I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, that kid might be a decent it's athlete possible. then, huh? It's, <laughs> it's possible. But and it's, also, yeah, I like, work with uh, Jalen's dad, uh, Lamont, who is apparently a health and fitness guru and trains like. Jalen Ramsey has not been in a training camp uh, or a voluntary mini camp since getting to Jacksonville. And that's the plan. He'll never be there. And he's literally quoted saying he'll never come to a voluntary mini camp because he works with his dad and his dad. is like, that's the thing. Like, <laughs> so we'll see what happens there. And wow. Uncle Dennis, oh, my situation looming in Jacksonville, something to watch. <laughs> it appears to be. Can you imagine I was Tom just like getting a note from Jalen? Like, Oh yeah, I'll, I'll never actually be there. So uh, you'll see me in July. <laughs> Yeah, sure that would go over well. Um, but yeah, but the Lions, it's I could really see them going anywhere from five five and eleven to eleven and five this year. It, it I think they're going to be more towards that what they've been the last three or four years that the eight and eight, nine and seven, maybe ten and six. I think they'll be in the mix. I think they're gonna have a couple games that surprise people. They'll have a couple games maybe that they're still the same old Lions, but yeah, they're they're Definitely the most interesting team to me as well because I just I'm just not exactly sure how all these pieces are going to gel because like you said they had a, a confusing offseason it couldn't turn out to be outside of Ezekiel yeah Lisa. like that's their only like sure thing on the defensive side of the ball I feel like yeah who's who's going to really rush the passer <laughs> outside of Lisa? that's that would be a concern of mine especially in today's NFL where you give any uh, quarterback enough time they can make them look decent and with all the quarterbacks. Even even your beloved Mitch Trubisky, apparently, who you're putting up there. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of weapons that they're going to have to face on the uh, in 
in the secondary. And I like uh, Glover Quinn, I and say, I think I should um, mention Darius Slay, my dude. He's really good. Darius Slay sure as well. Yeah, uh, we can throw him in the sure thing category. But outside of that, like Ashawn Robinson, um, Anthony Zettel, sure. Um, Gerard Davis is fine. Christian Jones is an yeah. outside linebacker, and Devin Kennard. I don't know who either of those people are. Yeah, I mean, it's their linebackers are it's. It's a who's who of who. But then again, the Saints <laughs> like, won uh, the NFC South last year with uh, Manti Te'a running the linebacking core there. Yeah, and they and had a so, uh, and let's just say a worse situation than Detroit's uh, linebacking core. Like it is amazing, but also like shout out to me for uh, picking the Saints to win the division before last year. But uh, <laughs> yeah, anyway, continue. Um, yeah, that's. I mean, that's one of those that. You look at the the key additions and the key subtractions for the Lions, and you're like, okay, I can see it. I could maybe see this being a disaster as well. So Wait, can you see disaster? I'm, like I'm interested to see it. Twelve with Stafford. When was the last time Stafford, when he played like 16 well, games, they actually fell apart? I feel like it hasn't happened uh, in almost a decade now. Yeah, I mean, it's been obviously a while because they have been right around that um, 500. Yeah, looking it up quick. In, in the last, because actually Stafford has played. Man, he's been durable. He's played yeah. every game since 2011. Um, yeah, they went in 2012. They went uh, four and twelve, okay. but since that, it's seven and nine. The eleven and five playoff season, seven and nine, nine and seven, nine and seven. So yeah, they're always hanging around. Um, you know, usually getting eliminated in those last couple weeks of the season. So it'll be interesting to see which side of that eight and eight ledger they fall on this year. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, and uh, I don't know. I feel like they're just gonna they're gonna win like four or five games. That's just gonna drive all of us nuts. Where it's like, how did that even happen? That that should not be a thing. They're gonna sneak into the playoffs, aren't they? It's like they like they might be the Bills this year, where like nobody like we can all admit that they're they're fine, but nobody wants to see them in the playoffs because um the playoffs is about enjoyment and sports is a television show for us, and we watch <laughs> fun things. Like my whole pitch last year was that let's just give the Bills the the right to say they qualify for the playoffs but like the jaguars literally don't go to the afc championship game if the chargers are in the bill spot like the chargers are winning in jacksonville in that wild card game that game was disgusting i hate that it was broadcast on national television i hate that i had to sit mm-hmm. through that three hour slugfest like didn't we get nate peterman at the end where he was doing crazy st- uh, it was all awful because i think Ty- tyrod got knocked out of that game if i'm remembering correctly but uh um, yep yeah should not have happened. Should have stepped in and been well, like, the I mean, Chargers were streaking at the right time, as they always do. And, uh, <sighs> yeah, they, they would have won. That's I'm sticking to that point. Casey Hayward locked down Blake Bortles. Um, I think Blake Bortles, when he has a clean pocket, has like a 99 QB rating. When he doesn't, it's like 64. And uh, guess what? Guess who the two edge rushers in San, in San Diego, in Los Angeles are? Melvin Ingram and Joey Bosa. They would have yep. won that game, and we wouldn't have to deal with any of this nonsense. Blake Bortles doesn't get paid. Everything else, everything's different. I, I, I don't know. The Chargers will never not infuriate me on a multitude of levels. <laughs> and you know what? No more practice for them. No more. Jason Verrett's gone. No, they should they, just like everybody's dropping like flies. They need to cancel the rest of it. No preseason. No anything. Bubble wrap until week one. Absolutely. That team. I don't know what it is about their. Their Julys and August are just an absolute house of horrors because they lose three or four key players every single preseason. It's just Jay absolutely incredible. Sixteen games last year, and it feels like that was the first time that's ever happened. 
Probably, yeah. And now, knock on wood, because watching oh, you know, get hurt in week two. Please, no. Like yeah, that. No, because oh, I... no, he is so fun to watch, yes. Um, this is a good thing next, to that's actually... that we're going to talk about that uh, is going to drive people crazy, and they're going to drive me crazy. But they'll be fun to watch. Chicago Bears. Yeah, this is another one. Again, these are the darlings of the off-season uh, Twitter really and this, uh, talking this head media. They're getting. You no, really I think I. Well, because it all hinges on Mitchell yeah. Trubisky. I watched him twice, uh, very closely last year, and I was uh, not impressed to say the least. But again, rookie quarterback with absolutely no weapons around him. Too early to call. I'm not calling him a bust. I don't think he's absolutely awful. And we've already seen the blueprint of it with with Jared Goff last year on the Rams. And, you know, when you add Allen Robinson, just think if they actually get anything of substance off uh, out of Kevin White this yep. year. You know, that if he, if he could, well, that's the, the same thing with the Vikings. In the second round, Anthony Miller, who's really, really good. Like, there's a, they have a, yeah. just a plethora of guys. They have a bunch of guys, which I think is the most important thing, are not named Marcus Wheaton. Like, that's a huge win for them. <laughs> yes. And, I mean, that's the sad thing is the the Vikings took literally their best wide receiver from last year in Kendall Wright, and he's probably going to be the fourth wide receiver in the Vikings because actually Laquan Treadwell decided to actually show up and start playing football so far okay, in camp. Okay, let's so. not hold our breath there. Let's, but, let's be careful with Laquan Treadwell stuff. But, again, it, again, well, I'm holding my breath the same way that I'm holding a breath for Kevin White. So, basically, any kind of output is is – you know, money in the bank because you're not expecting. Dylan turns into a top five receiver in the NFL, and Treadwell was the guy that you've been with, like the first round pick and everything else. It's amazing how this works. Why do we draft? Well, and Stephon, the first round? what are we doing here? It's the Stephon Diggs was a fifth yeah. round pick, so yeah, <laughs> that was all the draft capital they took for arguably the best one to do <laughs> in football. Nobody knows anything. Exactly. That's always what you know from the draft. But yeah, I mean, you got Jordan Howard and Tree Cohen. That's a good one two punch out of the backfield, especially the way they used Cohen. Um, receipt uh catching balls out of the backfield and if Rokon Swift decides to show up here with this offset language I'm sure it'll be solved in the next couple days maybe even by the time you hey, post smart, this though, tomorrow it's like I think he knows he's getting fined he he knows how this is gonna go well that's another it's been a weird thing because we uh there's another writer that's been covering camp for the Vikings he did a story on he basically asked everyone he could find on this new rule and no one knows anything yet and I've seen at least a half a dozen stories now yeah yeah trusting the referees to interpret a rule that no one really is (laughs) yeah exactly so yeah I I do think it's smart and it's it's one of those things where it's like okay if this is going to if I'm going to get suspended for something that I'm not even sure is how it's going to be enforced yet that's not a that's not a bad deal and hope but you know in the bears with contracts too you know with these restricted free agents that they easily could have re-signed and then all of a sudden just get let let walk on a matching offer this last year it's it's uh i mean again the pieces are in place i'm still a little questionable on the the overall I like their corners, defense i think but i do like adrian amos a lot like i think their safeties yeah. are gonna be good like Prince and uh, Amukamura. Amos might be one of the, yeah. Amukamura. I, I always mess this one up. Prince Amukamura. 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 Yes, Prince. Yes. yes. Um, yeah, he's, I wasn't really impressed with him last year, but Kyle Fuller, I mean, after, I mean, he didn't get his fifth year option and then they had to resign him this year because he actually blew yeah. up in his contract year. Which so. makes me wonder, like, now is he regressing back? Like, I, 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 yeah. Right. It's, it's weird. Exactly. Was it just kind of a one year thing? Of course, they had a Trey Burton too. And that's, it, it's, it'll be and, player. Yeah, of course, <laughs> and a former court, yeah. quarterback, of course, too. So. He is it all. And uh, having him 
And uh, who was the guy that drafted last year? Was it Deion Sims? I, I believe was so. The, yes. tight end? the Miami kid? Yeah, the kid. Yeah, I think that. But so that's a really nice one to punch. If they want to run some big sets, they have a lot of different options and a lot of different looks they can show uh, on offense as well. But again, it hinges on Trubisky, and he's really going to have to make that leap for me to believe in him. It's, it's definitely possible. We've seen it happen in recent years, but I'm I'm still not sold. I still think. I think, again, they're going to be a much improved team, but I think they're bringing up the, the rear on a much more competitive NFC North this year. It's so hard to read because I feel like if you finish last in the NFC North this year, you still might be better than like a third of like the AFC. Maybe two-thirds. Like, oh, the, it, it is ridiculous how stacked the NFC is compared to the AFC this year. It, like, I mean, even the Patriots, if they take a big step back and regress, they're probably going to grab the third seed. I mean, that's... <laughs> I mean, they've won 12 it, games for how many years in a row? I want to say six. Yeah, well, and it's been 10, I think, for at least a dozen yeah. now. It, it's, they're going to win. It's ridiculous. Like, it doesn't really matter. They'll do it until they don't, but, like, yeah, I'm not... I don't know. Like, I saw Ben Albright talk about how, like, if he had to pick his number one, uh, if he had to guess who is drafting number one overall next year... Um, the Seahawks would be his pick, which blew my mind because when was the last time a quarterback who was like a top five quarterback um, led his team to the worst record in football? Like, when has that happened? I feel like yeah, without without being yeah. injured, I I can't. The only way I see that happening yeah. is if yeah. he gets injured, which is obviously a possibility mm-hmm. with the way Wilson plays, but he also doesn't get hit. And um, I mean, it's going to be a dumpster fire. But like Brian Schottenheimer is their offensive coordinator. Like not great. Oh, yeah, that is true. So, I mean, it's gonna be bad. Like he's the he's the Don Caper. He's the Don Capers of offensive coordinators. He just keeps finding jobs, point. man. Yes, exactly. Rob Jadzinski was available. Who was like above him in Indianapolis as the OC. I don't know how he didn't get that job or how he's just like out of the NFL. I always like Chuds. Yeah, I thought he did a decent job at most of his stops. He was fun. Yeah. Carolina. He like created the cam offense that worked originally, and then he left. And like, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I like Chuds. He should have gotten that job. That's what they should have done. Oh, and by the way, Deion Sims is there on the Bears, but uh, Adam Shaheen, that was oh, the one gotcha. they drafted last year, just to, call, just yeah. to clarify. Okay. There we go. Um, I just The NFC North is going to be fun. It's going to be a bloodbath. It really is. And uh, you're going to be really upset when the Bears uh, beat the Vikings in Minnesota. Uh, in Minnesota, I don't know, that rarely happens. In Soldier Field, I'd believe okay. it in a heartbeat, because up until the last, I think, three years, they had... It has been a lopsided affair. No matter how bad the Bears are or how good the Vikings are, they usually the Soldier Field has been a, a really terrible place for them. But I think they have won two of the last three. We can make a trade. But again, yeah, we can I, make a trade. How about this? If um, the Vikings um, lose to the Bears twice this year, you have to send John D. Filippo to Atlanta, and you get Steve Sarkeesian. Oh, that's, that's just the death sentence yeah. right there. If you lose to Trubisky <laughs> twice this year, we get D. Filippo. Okay, that's only fair, though. If we lose to Trubisky <laughs> twice, yes. Oh, man. It's going to be fun, no matter what. Um, Eric, is there anything else we should look at um, coming uh, out of your neck of the woods this week? Um, are you going to more training camps? What's going on in uh, the Daily Norseman? Yep, I'll be back there on uh, Thursday, which we're recording here on a Wednesday night. They had an off day today, but I'll be back. I think I am scheduled to cover... Um, at least six or seven more practices up and through. And my favorite, I'm ending on the Jaguars and uh, Vikings 
uh, co-practice. So I can't wait to just sit on the sidelines and hear all the fun things that uh, Jalen Ramsey has to say to everyone in oh, within earshot. So. Him and AJ Bouye, and that whole defense talks. I can remember Malik Jackson gone off. I think he like yelled at uh, when they gave up that horrible was it the second half to the 49ers when Jimmy Garoppolo went off or maybe that was the first quarter where they yep. like cuz I know they beat them late in the season and just blew them up and that caught them off guard but like I want to say that whole defense talks a lot which is good like that's a good thing like mm-hmm. good de- like the Seahawks did the same thing and it it's a I yeah, love it's it. a positive yes. thing but like Jalen is like he is um he already branded like the JR20 or something logo he had it on Instagram but like he is uh, I forgot what he calls it. It's not Ramsey Island, but he's doing something similar. And uh, him and AJ yeah, well, I mean, he's going, are a fun duo. Yeah, he, he's going full prime yeah. time. He was, he's he's going to the whole personality. I love it. Uh, yeah, give me the mo- the better the trash talking, from, especially from that position at corner. You're supposed to be. You're supposed to have that kind of swagger. And I love Xavier it. Xavier Woods also FSU guy. So maybe we'll have some FSU back and forth between Rhodes and uh, Ramsey. I can I can imagine, and because Xavier Rhodes is an uh, underrated trash talker, he's he's a little quieter with it. He's not as demonstrative, but he 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 can run his mouth pretty well Except too. When he's playing Golden Tate. No, it's not Golden Tate. Oh, Marvin it's Jones. Uh, Marvin Jones. Right. Yeah, the, he, he can shut down Antonio Brown. He can shut down uh, Odell Beckham Jr. But for some reason, Marvin Jones had his number last Just year. Because Marvin Jones is ridiculously good at downfield passes. He really is, and boy, it's it's that's my favorite part of Lions Twitter. Like, I'll just bring up how you know, say something nice about Xavier Rhodes, and there's always at least one or two <laughs> Lions. Like, not against Marvin Jones, though. <laughs> they ha- give them something. They you were just in the it's, NFC. Oh, they game. can have it. I, I I have readily admitted it multiple times on this podcast. Good yeah, for him. They never get nice things, but maybe this year. Um, Eric Thompson, it's always a pleasure. I'm glad we were able to do this tonight. We can find you on Twitter at Eric underscore J underscore Thompson. We can read you at thedailynorseman.com and uh, keep up with uh, all your great coverage of the Minnesota Vikings as they try and get back on Trubisky's level and the hype machine that they're dealing with in Chicago. <laughs> Let's see how they handle all of it. And the return of Aaron Rodgers. Um, all great things to monitor, but uh, we will talk again soon, I'm sure, as the NFL season um, is on the way like what don't we have games next week i think there are games next friday right well i think the hall of fame game is this weekend yeah, isn't it i don't i don't but yeah but like uh, the real yeah game. the real game start yeah. next week yes the, the, i know the vikings first one is on the 10th in denver so in the hall of fame game this year uh bears and someone okay. I think. Yeah. the hype starts yeah. first game of the all it's bears <laughs> for, ravens for three plays if he plays Ooh, yes. Lamar jackson okay i might watch yeah. Tyler Bray, the third string quarterback for the Bears, get him back in there. The ten- oh, Chase Daniel, the best uh, back oh, yeah. of the last like ten years. There you go. Uh, get some Betty Cunningham okay. reps. I think he's yes, on the he Bears still. There we go. <laughs> I like this. I think it's gonna work. This is a good sell. Um, for the NFL right now. All right, man. This is great. I appreciate you taking the time, and we will talk again soon, sir. All right. It should be a fun year in the NFC North. Thanks for having me on, Chase. Go Bears. <laughs> And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I uh, just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I would really appreciate it if you could take a second, leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple Podcast listener, remember you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, be sure to check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. 
And also follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Uh, thank you for your support and we'll be back at another episode very soon. Thanks, guys. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.